How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State by Derek Brose Second Edition Inspired by the work of Samuel E. Konkin III Introduction to the Second Edition In the three years that have passed since the release of the first edition of How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, the problems I identified have become frighteningly obvious to millions of people around the world. Individuals who might have never before considered themselves political or questioned the authorities began to do just that in March 2020, when the world was introduced to COVID-19. Governments around the world and institutions like the World Health Organization are looking to the philosophy of technocracy to guide them through the early 2020s. In fact, the term technocracy itself has become more mainstream as more people have begun to recognize the grim digital prison that is planned for the 2030s and beyond. When I began to write this book in late 2019, I did so because I felt the digital panopticon, an all-pervasive, technologically managed police state, was at humanity's collective doorstep. I wrote the book with the hope of revealing hard truths relating to the rise of surveillance, the loss of privacy, and the technocratic philosophy, but most importantly, to suggest solutions for dealing with these pressing realities. While this book was a warning about what was to come, I didn't anticipate the techno-tyranny rearing its authoritarian head so quickly after I published How To in January 2020. I also failed to see that the fear of a worldwide pandemic would be used to usher in many elements of the technocratic state I describe within this book. Thankfully, as the tyranny rose, so did the people's desire to reclaim their sovereignty. Better late than never. As a waking public began debunking the narratives and questioning the overreaches surrounding COVID-19, they also sought remedies. There's only so much bad news you can absorb and rabbit holes you can travel down before you get to the point of asking, what am I going to do about it? As the public sought an answer to that question, a number of false solutions were offered by others of lesser principles, namely activists promoting voting, violence, the ballot box, or various common law schemes. These solutions included waiting for a politician to come along and save the day, appealing to the courts to protect us, filing paperwork to declare oneself free, and or marching and protesting. Putting our faith in politicians has proven itself to be a waste of time over and over and over again. And while getting out to the streets, as people did in the thousands and even hundreds of thousands, can be extremely important for self-expression and building camaraderie, it did not stop the rise of technocracy from March 2020 to the present moment. This is not to say that there is no place for any of the above. If marching, politicking, and filing lawsuits is your chosen method of fighting back, go for it. But I also encourage you to consider the possibility of exiting these slavery systems entirely and building, or supporting those who are building, parallel systems. This exit-and-build strategy was inspired by Samuel E. Konkin III's philosophies of agorism and counter-economics and first introduced in How To in 2020. Since the release of the book, the term exit-and-build has become part of the lexicon of the various truth and freedom movements, as more people have awakened to the threat of technocracy and begun seeking practical solutions for their communities. Exit and Build is focused on identifying the systems that are likely to lead to less privacy and liberty and taking steps to abandon those systems. This can happen overnight in some cases, 
switching to alternatives to Google products, for example, and over a longer period of time, preparing to close your bank account by diversifying your portfolio, etc. The systems you choose to abandon and the ones you choose to support will depend on your specific situation and a number of variables. Ultimately, each individual needs to decide what steps he or she is willing to take in the interest of staying free and thriving. Many looking for solutions in 2020 and 2021 discovered the Exit and Build strategy, as well as the Freedom Cell Network. As I outline in the chapters ahead, John Bush and I began laying the foundation for a worldwide network of freedom communities and freedom cells, or circles, hives, hubs, pods, etc., if you prefer, as far back as 2015. The Freedom Cell movement had been steadily picking up pace in the years before COVID-19, but it took this life-shifting series of events and the threat of technocracy and a future digital prison to bring the masses to the movement. Prior to March 2020, the Freedom Cells website had around 1,500 members scattered around the world. As of September 2022, there are more than 34,000 members on the site, with tens of thousands more using the Freedom Cell network via the Telegram app and countless others organizing in person. As I will share in the new additions to this post-COVID-19 update of the book, hundreds of people have directly communicated to me that the Freedom Cell website and movement in general helped them find like minds when the world was locked down. Many of these people have gone on to start projects together, including homeschooling their children, buying land together, building gardens, and so much more. This proves that the concept of decentralized networks can work and be an effective tool for building community. But we're not done yet. Our movement is not content to simply help people find new friends. If we are to thrive in the face of the Great Reset, a term which we hadn't even heard when I first wrote this book only three short years ago, we must put our energy into the creation of parallel networks and institutions that can directly challenge the mainstream slavery systems. I chose to write this update because I think my initial prediction of what was to come has been proven correct, and now I want to share what I've learned since the book was first published. I have personally gained a wealth of knowledge regarding community organizing, building strong freedom cells, evading lockdowns and injection mandates, and the growth of the counter-economy during tyrannical times. I have heard from hundreds of cells around the world sharing their successes and their failures. I have also been directly involved in producing The Greater Reset, an effort to directly challenge the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, bringing together people from all over the world to learn about freedom cells, counter-economics, and exit and build. Frankly, there is much to share, and there's never been a more crucial time than now to update my original work. My hope is that it will continue to reach the hearts and minds of people who desire solutions for the incoming techno-tyranny. I have kept the first two parts of the book and the introduction in their original form so that the reader can fully grasp how quickly the technocratic state came into view in the early 2020s. In addition to this new introduction, I have also added five new chapters specifically focused on what I've learned in the last three years. When I concluded my original introduction, I encouraged readers to remain agile and adaptable. 2020 proved those traits to be absolutely necessary, and I believe that the coming years will require even more flexibility. If we collectively begin to exit from these failing systems and reject the new systems being proposed, while also putting our energy into crafting the future we want for our children, we can survive and thrive in the age of the technocratic state. 
However, this cannot be done without risk or sacrifice. You must decide what you are willing to do for the coming generations. How will you change your daily behavior? Will you reject big tech? Or will you make compromises out of convenience, accepting the next upgrade to your digital devices without concern for the terms and conditions? Will you learn about alternative currencies and quit the banks? Or will you accept universal basic income in the form of a central bank digital currency? Will you accept forced masking and vaccinations for your children? Or will you free them from public indoctrination centers? Will you feed yourself and your family meals made of crickets and synthetic meat? Or make the effort to grow your own food? Or at least support those in your local area who do? The answers to these questions, and many more, will determine your future. You are the only one who can either stand in your way or drive you to liberation. As for me, I will continue to spread this message and decouple myself from the systems which are diametrically opposed to my principles. I hope to see you on the other side of 2030. Derek Bros, September 2022 Introduction to the First Edition As humanity enters the third decade of the 21st century, we find ourselves at the precipice of a technocratic age where artificial intelligence, smart technology, and the Internet of Things are becoming a part of everyday life. This technology provides benefits but comes at a cost. Corporations, governments, law enforcement, and hackers are all capable of peering into our lives at any moment. Corporations and governments are even learning to use technology in a way that allows them to be the social engineers of society. The concept of social credit is also becoming increasingly popular, and the likelihood that citizens will face negative consequences for choosing to speak about controversial topics or criticizing authorities is only going to increase. This shift toward a world where digital technology is the solution for all things is being driven by the tech sector, specifically the institutions often referred to as big wireless and big tech. The CEOs of transnational corporations and their partners in government have worked to cement digital technology into every aspect of humanity. The world they envision is one where scientists and technologists are the elite class who decide the future of society. While the digital technology of these industries has only emerged in the last few decades, the philosophy which guides many of the leading figures in industry and government is nearly a century old. This philosophy of a rule by technological experts and scientists is known as technocracy. As we will see in the coming chapters, the ideas which underpin this school of thought have quietly been influencing world leaders for decades. Is this obscure political theory from the 20th century the guiding force behind the move towards a digital dystopia? What are the implications for a world that is always plugged in and on the grid? How can one maintain privacy and liberty in a society that is based on mass surveillance, technological control, and the loss of individuality? I believe the answers to these questions lie in the writings of political philosopher Samuel Edward Konkin III. Konkin was an activist during the 1960s when talk of revolution in America was at its peak. He believed that using violence to overthrow the state would only result in another leader stepping in and continuing the charade. Konkin also rejected voting, seeing it as participating in an immoral system, as well as an inadequate strategy for achieving lasting change. Rather than voting or violence, Konkin proposed a third path for the freedom seeker, 
which he termed counter-economics, and more specifically, agorism. We will explore his work in detail in the coming chapters. Whether Konkin's vision of freeing the people from the chains of the state becomes reality completely depends on the consciousness of the people. After enough people have been educated about the dangers of the technocratic era, there must also be an understanding of the power of noncompliance. If a mass of people find ways to avoid the digital corporate state, we can leverage our numbers and the power of the counter-economy. We can create more freedom and opportunity to live the lives of abundance we desire. The window is short, but we have the opportunity to remove ourselves from the state's matrix of control. The current social credit system employed in China will soon make its way to the United States and the rest of the civilized world. It has already become nearly impossible to live a life that is not monitored and analyzed from cradle to grave. If we plan to survive this quickly approaching technocratic corporate state control grid, I believe we must embrace the solutions first identified by Samuel E. Konkin III. It's time to recognize that agorism and counter-economics are the answer to our problems. One final note. As I type these words in December 2019, I do so with the full awareness that digital technology is evolving at an exponential rate. The invasive technology of today might appear quaint or even archaic to someone reading this in 2025. I will admit that even the solutions contained within this book may end up outdated in less than a decade depending on the direction our technological world takes. However, no matter what the future looks like, my message to you is never surrender. Find ways to adapt. Build communities with other like-minded people. Keep the flames of liberty alive in your heart and minds. As long as the human spirit desires to be free, we can and will find a way to overcome all hardship. No matter what year you discover this book, please use it as inspiration and a foundation upon which to build. Humanity's future is in your hands. Derek Bros, January 2020 Part 1. Technocracy, Counter-Economics, and the Future of Freedom The following chapters offer a brief introduction to several concepts including technocracy, counter-economics, and agorism. In the interest of getting to the how-to aspect of this presentation, we are only going to give an overview of these ideas. For those who want to understand the larger implications of the technocratic movement, I recommend author Patrick Wood. If you are interested in a more robust understanding of counter-economics and agorism, I recommend my own book, Manifesto of the Free Humans, as well as Samuel Konkin's books. I also highly recommend reading Konkin's final unfinished book, Counter-Economics. Chapter 1. What is a Technocracy? In the early 20th century, a movement began to develop around a political theory known as technocracy a system where management of governments is handled by technical experts, often involving technology-focused solutions. The proponents of technocracy claimed the concept would lead to better management of resources and protection of the planet. However, the system of governance by technological experts and their technology would also involve a loss of privacy, centralization, and management of all human behavior. Although the term appears to have been largely forgotten, the technocratic philosophy and influence can be seen everywhere in our modern digital world. One of the most influential proponents of technocracy was a man named Howard Scott, a writer who founded the Technical Alliance in New York City in 1919. Scott believed business owners 
lacked the necessary skills and data to reform their industries and thus control should be handed over to engineers. In 1932, Scott and fellow technocrat Walter Rautenstrauch formed the Committee on Technocracy at Columbia University. The group would eventually splinter, with Scott leading Technocracy Incorporated and technocrat Harold Loeb in charge of the Continental Committee on Technocracy. In 1938, Technocracy Incorporated released a publication which outlined their vision for a technocracy. Quote, Technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population of this continent. For the first time in human history, it will be done as a scientific, technical, engineering problem. There will be no place for politics or politicians, finance or financiers, rackets or racketeers. Technocracy states that this method of operating the social mechanism of the North American continent is now mandatory because we have passed from a state of actual scarcity into the present status of potential abundance in which we are now held to an artificial scarcity forced upon us in order to continue a price system which can distribute goods only by means of a medium of exchange. Technocracy states that price and abundance are incompatible. The greater the abundance, the smaller the price. In a real abundance, there can be no price at all. Only by abandoning the interfering price control and substituting a scientific method of production and distribution can an abundance be achieved. Technocracy will distribute by means of a certificate of distribution available to every citizen from birth to death. The technate will encompass the entire American continent from Panama to the North Pole because the natural resources and the natural boundary of this area make it an independent, self-sustaining geographical unit. End quote. Technocrats publicized their vision of a centrally planned world with books, speeches, clubs, and political parties. This resulted in a brief period of popularity in the U.S. and Canada in the years following the Great Depression of 1929. As politicians and economists searched for a solution to the financial calamity, the technocrats imagined a world where politicians and business owners were replaced with scientists, engineers, and other technical experts to manage the economy. However, in the 1940s, mainstream interest in the technocracy movement seemed to dissipate. Some researchers attribute this to a lack of a coherent political theory for achieving change, while others say President Roosevelt and the New Deal provided an alternative solution to financial hardship. Regardless, technocracy ceased to be a topic of mainstream political discourse, even as the Industrial Revolution spurred on new technologies and previously unseen wealth for those in control of said technology. The ideas that underpinned the technocratic vision received a notable endorsement in 1970, when political scientist Zbigniew Brzezinski released his book Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. Brzezinski will be familiar to long-term researchers of the ruling elite. Until his death in 2018, Brzezinski was a diplomat who ran in the same circles as former Secretary of State and accused war criminal Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller. Brzezinski served as advisor to several presidents, from Jimmy Carter to Barack Obama. Brzezinski was also a member of the Atlantic Council, the National Endowment for Democracy, and the Council on Foreign Relations. Brzezinski's Between Two Ages may have changed the term from technocracy to technotronic, but the depiction of the future is the same, a world in which the scientific and technological elite centrally plan the lives of all humanity. Essentially, a technologically advanced authoritarian collectivism, 
where individual liberties are subordinate to the apparent needs of the collective. Brzezinski explains Technotronic in the following way. Quote, The post-industrial society is becoming a technotronic society, a society that is shaped culturally, psychologically, socially, and economically by the impact of technology and electronics, particularly in the area of computers and communications. The industrial process is no longer the principal determinant of social change, altering the mores, the social structure, and the values of society. In the technotronic society, scientific and technical knowledge, in addition to enhancing production capabilities, quickly spills over to affect almost all aspects of life directly. Accordingly, both the growing capacity for the instant calculation of the most complex interactions and the increasing availability of biochemical means of human control augment the potential scope of consciously chosen direction, and thereby also the pressures to direct, to choose, and to change. End quote. Here are a few more choice quotes from Between Two Ages, America's role in the technotronic era, which make it clear that the goal is to build a global technocracy. Quote, Another threat, less overt but no less basic, confronts liberal democracy. More directly linked to the impact of technology, it involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled and directed society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite whose claim to political power would rest on allegedly superior scientific know-how. Unhindered by the restraints of traditional liberal values, this elite would not hesitate to achieve its political ends by using the latest modern techniques for influencing public behavior and keeping society under close surveillance and control. Under such circumstances, the scientific and technological momentum of the country would not be reversed, but would actually feed on the situation it exploits. End quote. Quote, Persisting social crisis, the emergence of a charismatic personality, and the exploitation of mass media to obtain public confidence would be the stepping stones in the piecemeal transformation of the United States into a highly controlled society. End quote. Quote, Today we are witnessing the emergence of transnational elites, but now they are composed of international businessmen, scholars, and public officials. The ties of these new elites cut across national boundaries, their perspectives are not confined by national traditions, and their interests are more functional than national. Increasingly, intellectual elites tend to think in terms of global problems, the need to overcome backwardness, to eliminate poverty, prevent overpopulation, to develop effective peacekeeping machinery. The concern with ideology is yielding to preoccupation with ecology, pollution, overpopulation, and the control of disease, drugs, and weather. There is a widespread consensus that functional planning is desirable and that it is the only way to cope with various ecological threats. End quote. Quote, the fiction of sovereignty is clearly no longer compatible with reality. The time has come for a common effort to shape a new framework for international politics. There is already widespread agreement on developing international peacekeeping forces. Emerging global consciousness is forcing the abandonment of preoccupations with national supremacy and accentuating global interdependence. End quote. Brzezinski's vision of the future was not mere speculation or guesswork. He was a member of the ruling class who spent his life using nation states and the people within them as pawns in a chess game in which most of the players are dangerously oblivious to the reality unfolding around them. I believe Brzezinski's book describes the world that is unfolding in the early 2020s. I highly recommend diving deep into his work for other fascinating insights into where we are 
and where we might be headed. Now that we understand a bit of history of technocracy and some of the ideas that it proposed, we need to examine the world of today to note the technocratic, or technotronic if you prefer, influence. Let's start by looking at the most wealthy companies and most influential CEOs. These individuals are running companies which have amassed large amounts of financial wealth, as well as unfathomable amounts of digital data on all of their customers. From Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Bill Gates of Microsoft, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, Elon Musk of Tesla, and lesser-known names at Google, Apple, and others, these are the technocrats of the early 2020s. Interestingly enough, Musk appears to be walking a path similar to his grandfather, Joshua Haldeman, who was a research director for Technocracy Incorporated of Canada and national chairman of the Social Credit Party. These men and their colleagues in various technological industries wield immense power through their companies, wealth, and cultural influence. These individuals have enough money, resources, and connections to shape elections, geoengineer the climate, and cause dips in the stock market, to name a few examples. They are the technocrat class of today. I want to remind the potential reader of the future that these names might not mean anything to you at this point. They may indeed be relics of a long-dead past. Whatever the names of the corporations, CEOs, and governments filling this role, the concerns and possible solutions remain the same. If technology continues to advance exponentially, then it is likely that the trend towards surveillance will also continue, and with the decrease in privacy, a decrease in overall liberties. This is what we seek to overcome. Another example of the technocratic world involves the growing use of surveillance tools like facial recognition, voice detection, 24-7 closed-circuit TV cameras, artificial intelligence, algorithmic manipulation, cell phone surveillance, social media monitoring, location tracking, digital eavesdropping via smart devices, and the overall push towards a smart grid powered by 5G. Of course, these technologies are not promoted as surveillance tools, but rather tools for safety, convenience, education, and profit. However, the result is the same. Individuals and companies promoting technological solutions to the world's ills, resulting in a loss of individual freedoms and more centralized control. Of course, selling society on the need for a completely interconnected digital world where technologists and scientific experts organize our lives can be helped along with a healthy dose of propaganda from the state's favorite partner in crime, the corporate media. Brzezinski's Between Two Ages provides more insight into the technocratic plan. Quote, In the technotronic society, the trend seems to be toward aggregating the individual support of millions of unorganized citizens who are easily within the reach of magnetic and attractive personalities, and effectively exploiting the latest communication techniques to manipulate emotion and control reason. End quote. Together, the technocrats, aka big tech, their obedient friends in media, and their partners in government are becoming what I call the technocratic state. The rest of this work is dedicated to poking holes in this technocratic state and exploiting its weaknesses. As mentioned in the introduction, those who want to maintain privacy and liberty must be willing to adapt to constantly emerging technologies with the potential to liberate or imprison our hearts and minds. I believe the key to resisting the technocracy can be found in the work of Samuel Konkin III and his theory of counter-economics. Chapter 2. Counter-Economics and Agorism Note 
Before we get to the how-to of living a life outside the confines of the increasingly omniscient technocratic state, we must understand the history and philosophy of counter-economics. This chapter includes a rundown of the counter-economic strategy, including various definitions offered by Samuel Konkin III. The third chapter further breaks down the philosophy of agorism. Both chapters were originally published in my third book, Manifesto of the Free Humans, but have been updated to better reflect the specific nature of this book. I include them here as a brief introduction to the concepts of counter-economics and agorism. It is my hope that this distillation of Samuel Konkin's work will help readers understand that these strategies can be employed in your life, regardless of age, race, religion, ethnicity, gender, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, or any other division of the human species. Quite simply, counter-economics is a strategy that can be practiced by anyone anywhere in the world. For readers who are new to this field of research, I recommend checking out Konkin's New Libertarian Manifesto and an agorist primer. For those who are familiar with counter-economics and agorism, I recommend skipping ahead to Chapter 4. In 1979, anarchist, activist, and writer Samuel E. Konkin III released the New Libertarian Manifesto, presenting his case for a strain of libertarianism that he called New Libertarianism. The philosophy behind the New Libertarian movement was agorism, named after the agora, the Greek word for marketplace. We will elaborate on agorism in a moment, but essentially it is a radical philosophy that seeks to create a society free of coercion and force by encouraging people to opt out of the corporate state control grid. Konkin believed if a movement of people pulled their money, time, and support from corporate and state power, it would siphon away enough resources to collapse the state. As the state collapsed, the agorists would help build systems that are not based on violence and coercion. Konkin called on individuals to exit the mainstream economic system because he was one of the first modern thinkers to recognize that the unregulated market is the largest market in the world. Sometimes known as System D, alternative or informal economy, the value of this untaxed and unregulated market has a market value in the trillions of dollars. Throughout history, when a government or king has tried to enforce prohibition, be that drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, or books, they inadvertently caused a growth in the underground economy, or as Konkin called it, the counter-economy. Upon recognizing that the state has been incapable to slow the growth of the counter-economy, Konkin saw an opportunity to disempower the state and preserve liberty for the people. Konkin termed this strategy counter-economics, which he defined as the, quote, theory and practice of all human action neither accepted by the state nor involving any initiatory violence or threat of violence, end quote. Throughout the years, Konkin continuously refined his understanding and writing on the topic, and in doing so, he offered several definitions and background on counter-economics. Quote, an explanation of how people keep their wealth and property from the state is then counter-establishment economics, or counter-economics for short. The actual practice of human actions that evade, avoid, and defy the state is counter-economic activity, but in the same sloppy way economics refers to both the science and what it studies, counter-economics will undoubtedly be used. Since this writing is counter-economic theory itself, what will be referred to as counter-economics is the practice. End quote. The New Libertarian Manifesto. Quote, a counter-economist is one, anyone practicing a counter-economic act, two, 
one who studies such acts. Counter-economics is the one practice to study of counter-economic acts. End quote. An agorist primer. Quote, Counter-economics is doing what you want, when you want, for your own good reasons. End quote. Counter-economics. Quote, Counter-economics sounds like counterculture. Indeed, the term was chosen with that in mind. Where the counterculture rejected an establishment culture and its values in the 1960s, the counter-economists reject the establishment economics as just as corrupt. Much of the counterculture was counter-economic, much of it was not. Anti-economics is not counter-economics. In fact, counter-economics as theory was developed from what could be called an orthodox revolt against an heretical, impure establishment economics. End quote. Counter-economics. I have always seen counter-economics as a method of aligning your actions with your stated goals and principles. If you don't support illegal wars of aggression, then find ways to avoid paying taxes or donate your taxes to a charity. See War Tax Resistance. If you're tired of central banks manipulating the state's currency and enslaving you via funny money, then avoid the state's money. Use alternative currency, barter, reduce your need for money, etc. Counter-economics suggests that moral people break bad laws by choosing to consciously opt out of systems that do not align with their values. As Konkin wrote in the unfinished Counter-economics, quote, Counter-economic activity is any human action that takes place without the approval of the state. And since laws cover almost every human endeavor, often prohibiting both the action and its corresponding inaction, everyone, to at least some small degree, must bend or break laws simply to exist. End quote. Being a counter-economist means that when you run into a roadblock to your liberty and health, you find a way around it. This can include using or creating alternative currencies, community gardening efforts which provide an opportunity to be free of big corporate grocery stores, tax resistance, operating a business without licenses so your hard-earned money doesn't go to the state, and more. Counter-economics also extends to the creation of alternative education programs, free schools or skillshares, and independent media ventures that counter the establishment narratives. The reality is that the counter-economy is all around you, Every time someone pays a neighbor in cash to mow the lawn or do handiwork, they are participating in the counter-economy. The transaction does not involve taxes going to the state, and the cash makes it a non-digital, untraceable transaction. If you have ever shopped at a garage sale, flea market, or pop-up shop and not paid taxes, or perhaps even paid with an alternative currency, you have been a counter-economist. Of course, most of the public who participate in the counter-underground alternative economy do not realize the potential and likely have never heard of Konkin or counter-economics. He believed a raising in the consciousness and awareness of the power of the counter-economy could create a mass movement of people exiting the system and building new ways outside of the technocratic state. For a deeper understanding of Konkin's work, let's take a look at his writing on agorism. It is important to note that one need not self-identify as a new libertarian, libertarian, agorist, or anarchist to appreciate and make use of counter-economics. Simply put, one can practice counter-economics for the benefits it offers in escaping the technocracy while not completely agreeing with Konkin's theories. However, I share this research because I believe his ideas offer a viable path forward. Understanding Agorism In the New Libertarian Manifesto, 
Konkin outlines his vision for a more free and just world by first describing society's present condition, statism. Statism is the tendency for citizens of a nation to view the state as the mechanism for which change can be brought about. Thus, a statist is someone who blindly trusts in the authority of the state and always reaches to the state as the solution to society's ills. Konkin briefly outlines the path of human thinking, from slavery to the discovery of libertarian thought, and emphasizes the importance of consistency between means and ends. Indeed, Konkin believes that exposing status inconsistencies is, quote, the most crucial activity of the libertarian theorist, end quote. From here, Konkin describes the goal of agorism and the counter-economic means necessary to achieve this goal. In order to paint a clear picture of the agorist struggle for a more free world, Konkin explains the four stages, from statism to agorism, as well as various actions that a consciously practicing agorist might seize upon in order to advance agorist propaganda and counter-economic activity. By understanding Konkin's vision of progress, it is possible to create a diagram to outline how far society as a whole has come and where we as individuals fit within these steps. After the steps have been mapped, it will be possible to pinpoint strategies that can help the new libertarian move from one stage to the next. Konkin begins in Phase Zero, Zero-Density Agorist Society. Phase Zero is the time when agorists did not exist and libertarian thought was scattered and unorganized, which Konkin says has been most of human history. Once libertarians became aware of the philosophy of agorism, counter-economic activity began, and we moved into Phase 1, Low-Density Agorist Society. In this phase, the first counter-economic libertarians appear. Konkin believed that this was a dangerous time for activists who would be tempted by get-liberty-quick schemes. Konkin also reminds agorists not to be tempted by political campaigns. Quote, All will fail if for no other reason than liberty grows individual by individual. Mass conversion is impossible. End quote, he wrote. Phase one is presented at a time where the main goal of the few practicing counter-economists is recruitment and creation of radical caucuses, or what I call freedom cells. Konkin also notes that the majority of society is acting, quote, with little understanding of any theory, but who are induced by material gain to evade, avoid, or defy the state. Surely they are a hopeful potential, end quote. In order to achieve a free society, Konkin again emphasizes the need for education and, quote, consciousness raising of counter-economists to libertarian understanding and mutual supportiveness, end quote. Konkin also called for the creation of a movement which may grow strong enough in influence and numbers in the latter stages of phase one to be able to, quote, block marginal actions by the state, end quote. The ability to block actions by the state has absolutely increased in recent years with the explosion of decentralized peer-to-peer networks via the internet that allow for rapid sharing of information and calls to organize. There is a growing number of videos on the internet showing communities banding together to oppose unjust arrests by agents of the state. For example, the websites and apps freedomcells.org and getcell411.com offer tools that can be used to strengthen our communities, grow the counter-economy, and push back against the state. By using the Freedom Cell Network, one can locate other freedom-minded individuals within their city, state, or country with the specific goal of organizing in the real world and bypassing the need for government. In 2016, we launched freedomcells.org 
as an online platform for building mutual aid groups known as Freedom Cells, which we will explore in detail in the next chapter. GetCell411.com describes itself as a, quote, real-time free emergency management platform, end quote. This means it allows you to create cells or groups to which you can send out direct alerts in the case of a flat tire, car accident, violence from an agent of the state, or some other emergency. The app also allows for truly agorist ride-sharing, where a third party does not dictate the price of the trip or the currency that must be used. Note, once again, to the potential reader of the future, if these apps and websites have been made irrelevant due to time and technological advances, it is important to ensure we as free people have alternatives to the state and corporations. Each of these tools are a part of the technology of the counter-economy, which have the potential to render government intervention and regulation completely useless. If we seize the moment, we can grow the black and gray markets using these emerging peer-to-peer platforms. This is exactly what Konkin believed would help society progress from Phase 1 to Phase 2. As we move to Phase 2, mid-density, small-condensation agorist society, the statists take notice of agorism. It is in this phase that Konkin believes the counter-economy will grow, and agorists will begin to represent, quote, an ever-larger agorist sub-society embedded in the statist society, end quote. Although the majority of agorists are still living within the state's claimed territories, we begin to see a, quote, spectrum of the degree of agorism in most individuals, end quote. This includes benefactors of the state who are highly statist and a few fully conscious of the agorist alternative. However, the majority of society is still engaged in the statist economy. From here, Konkin suggests that agorists may want to start condensing into districts, ghettos, islands, or space colonies. We are in fact beginning to see the creation of agorist-minded communities, seasteaders, eco-villages, co-ops, and underground spaces, which emphasize counter-economic activity and the creation of counter-institutions to the state. Konkin believed these agorist communities might be able to count on the sympathy of mainstream society to prevent an attack from the state. This is the moment where the question of community protection and defense comes into play. We have seen the creation of community protection alternatives to the police state monopoly, see the Threat Management Center in Detroit and the auto defenses in Mexico. But thus far, nothing completely agorist has come into existence. It is the creation of these syndicates of community protection which will ultimately allow the agora to flourish. However, for this to happen, quote, the entire society has been contaminated by agorism to a degree, end quote, leading to the possible creation of an above or underground movement which Konkin called the New Libertarian Alliance. The NLA simply acts as the spokesperson for the agora and uses, quote, every chance to publicize the superiority of agorist living to statist inhabiting and perhaps argue for tolerance of those with different ways, end quote. This brings us to phase three, high-density, large-condensation, agorist society, which is described as the point when the state has moved into a terminal crisis period, due in part to, quote, the sapping of the state's resources and corrosion of its authority by the growth of the counter-economy, end quote. As the agora grows in influence, the state's stranglehold also dissipates because of unsustainable economic practices. Konkin again warns that the statists will attempt to win over new libertarians with anti-principles, and calls for maintaining vigilance and purity of thought, 
highly motivated new libertarians move into R&D to help create the first agorist protection and arbitration agencies that will compete with the state. At this point, government exists in pockets with the state mostly concentrated in one geographic territory. Those living under statism are very aware of the freedom being experienced by their agorist counterparts. The state has become weak enough that, quote, large syndicates of market protection agencies, end quote, can contain the state and defend new libertarians who sign up for protection insurance. This, Konkin believed, was, quote, the final step before the achievement of a libertarian society, end quote. Society is divided between the larger agorist areas and the isolated status centers. The transition from phase three to phase four brings about, quote, the last unleashing of violence by the ruling class of the state, end quote. Konkin said that once the state's intellectuals recognize that their authority is no longer respected, they will choose to attack. Defense against the state will be managed after the counter-economy has generated the syndicates of protection agencies large enough to defend against the remaining statists. The NLA should work to prevent the state from recognizing its weaknesses until the agorist movement has completely infected the statist society. Once the agorist communities have successfully resisted the state's attack, the agorist revolution will be complete. As we move from phase three to four, Konkin notes that the first three changes, quote, are actually rather artificial divisions. No abrupt change occurs from first to second to third, end quote. However, he envisions the change from the third to the fourth phases to be quite sudden. In phase four, agorist society with statist impurities, the status gasped its dying breath, and the counter-economy becomes the freed market, where exchanges are free of coercion. Konkin predicts that, quote, division of labor and self-respect of each worker, capitalist, entrepreneur will probably eliminate the traditional business organization, especially the corporate hierarchy, an imitation of the state, and not the market, end quote. He imagines companies as associations of independent contractors, consultants, and entrepreneurs. After the remnants of the state are apprehended and brought to justice, freedom becomes the basis of ordinary life, and, quote, we tackle the other problems facing mankind, end quote. Whether the totality of Konkin's vision becomes realized, the world has at the very least made some slight progress through the phases predicted in the New Libertarian Manifesto. All signs point to the counter-economy and consciously practicing agorist movement to be somewhere at the tail end of phase one and merging into phase two. As mentioned above, the internet, and technology as a whole, has greatly increased the chances for success of the Konkian revolution. While humanity is being exposed to the value of a life free of coercion, they have not yet been properly exposed to the tools with which to create such a world. If the agorist movement and counter-economy continue to expand in equal rates to the violence and theft of the state, it will only be a matter of time before we see protection agencies with the capacity to defend the people. Konkin believed that once the people recognize the state is weakened and in decline, they will naturally gravitate towards the counter-economy, leading his agorist vision to become reality. Clearly, the people of the world have a desire to exchange their goods and services without oppressive elitist barriers to entry in the marketplace. The people desire to voluntarily associate and exchange without interference or intervention. This desire will always lead to the creation of counter-economic activity in the black and gray markets as long as the mainstream statist economy is subject to the whims of the current puppets in control. However, seeking to escape the state's regulation is not the only goal to our agorist and counter-economic strategy. 
The end game is a stateless society where free people are not bound by the force and coercion of the parasitic state and corporate class. Though it is rarely discussed in public schools or the mainstream media, there are several examples of stateless societies and communities existing throughout history. For those interested in studying past stateless societies, I recommend studying James Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed, an anarchist history of upland Southeast Asia, A Century of Anarchy, Neutral Moorsnet Through the Revisionist Lens, and Pierre Clastre's Society Against the State. Chapter 3. Vertical and Horizontal Agorism Quote, As more people reject the state's mystifications, nationalism, pseudo-economics, false threats, and betrayed political promises, the counter-economy grows both vertically and horizontally. Horizontally, it involves more and more people who turn more and more of their activities toward the counter-economic. Vertically, it means new structures, businesses and services, grow specifically to serve the counter-economy. Safe communication links, arbitrators, insurance for specifically illegal activities, early forms of protection technology, and even guards and protectors. Eventually, the underground breaks into the overground, where most people are agorists, few are statists, and the nearest state enforcement cannot effectively crush them. End quote. Samuel E. Konkin III, Applied Agorism and Agorist Primer. We are going to take a look at two different types of counter-economic action that are applicable to a variety of individuals in a range of living situations. I refer to these strategies as vertical and horizontal agorism. We are working with two complementary definitions of horizontal and vertical that further explain the how-to of agorist philosophy. These definitions are taken from the above quote from Samuel Konkin III and from Swedish-Austrian economist Per Bieland and his 2006 essay, A Strategy for Forcing the State Back. Let's compare the definitions and see how they can provide a path for the curious counter-economist. Konkin starts by describing the counter-economy as growing horizontally in the sense of an increasing portion of the mainstream population turning their activities toward the non-statist economy. Vertical growth, in the Konkian sense, involves the actual creation of counter-institutions to the statist counterparts. This means building alternatives not only to the economic power centers via alternative currencies, but alternatives to the deadstream corporate media, the corporate food production systems, the compliant academic centers, and the growing nonprofit industrial complex. Per Bieland describes his vision of vertical agorism as the introvert strategy, based on the work and ideas of radical libertarian Carl Hess. Hess was an extremely eloquent speaker and speechwriter who grew from conservative to libertarian anarchist to a more left-leaning community organizer and activist. During the 1960s, he was heavily involved in organizing on campus during the rise of the New Left and anti-war student movements. Hess worked with Murray Rothbard, Konkin, Carl Oglesby of the Students for a Democratic Society, and several others in an attempt to forge alliances between the emerging New Left and libertarian movements. He was also one of the few people to have 100% of his wages stolen by the IRS for challenging the income tax. In the 1970s, Hess shifted the focus of his activism to experiment in community building within the low-income neighborhood of Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. In his books, Community Technology and Neighborhood Power, Hess outlines how he worked with a local neighborhood to build an empowered community focused on sustainability 
or what they termed appropriate technology. Hess describes a neighborhood with aquaponic gardening in basements, rooftop gardens, and community services meant to replace the state options. He was adamant that tools and technology directly contribute to freedom. By being able to share tools with your community members, you can share access to the means of production and encourage entrepreneurship. It is this focus on community empowerment that Per Bielen refers to as the vertical or introvert strategy. These actions can be considered agorist in the sense that they are aimed at building self and community reliance rather than dependence on external forces, but they are not explicitly counter-economic because they do not involve black and gray markets. Still, these vertical actions are extremely valuable and necessary. Vertical agorism includes participating in and creating community exchange networks, urban farming, backyard gardening, farmer's markets, supporting alternatives to the police, and supporting peer-to-peer decentralized technologies. While these vertical steps could potentially involve the use of the state's currency, and therefore not completely counter-economic, they are still significant for challenging the dependency on the state and corporate classes. Other vertical steps may not directly involve exchanging currency, but still work against dependency. This could include both moral support and promotion of technologies that disrupt the status quo and foster stronger relationships among community members. One very pronounced example of vertical agorism is seen in the growing alternative media, which has been made possible by the internet. Less than one generation ago, the mainstream media, owned by megacorporations and tightly regulated by government, controlled all of the information that filtered down to society. The distribution of information in society came from the top down, making it very easy to brainwash and propagandize the population. However, with the rise of the internet, activists and freedom-seeking individuals discovered they could use this new medium to create their own media, become journalists themselves, and fight back against the propaganda of the state. In just a few short years, the alternative media quickly upset the monopoly of the mainstream media, taking up large portions of their once-exclusive market share. The surge of independent media provides an excellent example in our study of how alternative systems and institutions can be created to compete with existing state monopolies. Unfortunately, the corporate state nexus has permeated social media as well, and censorship of independent voices is now pervasive as of 2019. The goal is to question and challenge the mechanisms of power that seek to influence and rule over our lives. This includes the state, as well as other institutions that attempt to exert control and influence. For example, by choosing to grow your own food or support local farmers, you are taking a vertical step away from the biotechnology corporations that promote the heavy use of pesticides and a potentially hazardous technology. You are also not supporting the transportation of food products from thousands of miles away. Instead, you walk to your backyard or the local market for your produce. This greatly increases your independence while terminating support for an unsustainable industry. These vertical steps are also the easiest ways to begin living in line with your principles. Once again, we can see the value of consistency of words and actions. Per Bielen describes the horizontal or extrovert strategy as more directly related to Konkin's ideas. The extrovert label is related to the bold choice to pursue actions the states considers to be illegal or immoral. By venturing into this territory, you are joining the ranks of the bootlegger, the moonshiner, the cannabis dealer, the guerrilla gardener, 
the weapons dealer, the crypto-anarchist, and the unlicensed lawnmower, food vendor, or barber. When one combines the vertical and horizontal agorist strategy, an image comes into view that illustrates the steps a wide range of people can take in a variety of living situations and environments. In the bottom left corner, we have statism, and in the top right corner, we have agorism. We can plot vertical actions that help lift the individual up from dependency. Perhaps your situation is better suited to vertical actions, such as growing your own food, using encrypted messaging, hosting community skill shares at your house, practicing peaceful parenting tactics, providing alternatives to state welfare by crowdfunding money for community projects and feeding the homeless, or simply cleaning up the neighborhood. Each of these steps moves the individual, and in the long term the community, vertically towards consistency and independence. For those who are ready to become counter-economists and take on the risks of gray and black market activity, we plot their actions both vertically and horizontally. An agorist practicing horizontally and vertically would move up and away from statism and dependency to the top right position of agorism. This means that for every garden built, alternative currency used, tax avoided, skill shared, business practice without a license, and illegal substance sold, the individual can plot their progress moving from dependency to self-reliance and from statism to agorism. When Konkin first espoused the concept of agorism, the consciously practicing counter-economy may have only involved a few radical libertarians. But since that time, the opportunities for black and gray market exchanges have grown immensely. As the state's weaknesses become apparent, it will become safer for the masses to begin exiting the former economy and joining the counter-economy. This is the truly freed market, or agora, of which Konkin spoke. Remember, we cannot defeat the technocratic state by using their technology blindly, as this will only serve to empower them. We must create and support alternatives to the state's monopolies whenever and wherever possible. It will take brave counter-economists venturing into uncharted territories, making mistakes, occasionally falling victim to the state's laws, and learning how to better our approach. We need these pioneers to lay the groundwork so that others will not have to face the same difficulties in the future. As these trailblazers light the way, we also expect to see a growth of free communities and freedom networks around the world. I have a vision of thousands of interlocking autonomous communities comprised of empowered individuals with a variety of unique ideas and expressions of the human experience. These communities are voluntarily trading and sharing skills without the violence inherent to our current paradigm and without the constant invasions of privacy. I believe this world can be achieved with an organized effort to spread agorist philosophy and increase participation in the counter-economy via vertical and horizontal agorism and the concept of freedom cells, which we will cover in Part 2. Chapter 4. The Drawbacks and solutions to living the counter-economic lifestyle. The reason one chooses to opt out of traditional institutions and societal expectations vary from person to person, but generally people are looking to stop supporting systems they do not agree with. Whether we are talking financially, to avoid taxation, or philosophically, on moral grounds, many of us who live outside of the mainstream system do so because we disagree with the people running these systems and in some cases, the system altogether. We do not want to fund these governments by complying with taxation. We do not want to support the monopolized banking system and the banks that rob the people. 
We do not want to violate our moral compass or principles by participating in these charades. Instead, we take steps to begin removing ourselves from these systems as quickly and safely as possible. We each have a different goal and different perspectives on how far to push the effort to opt out and vacate these systems that promote authoritarianism and financial theft. However, what unites us is our belief that people should be free to organize their own affairs without the interference of centralized authority in the form of government or monarchs. Put simply, we acknowledge that every individual owns themselves and should be able to live free of interference, extortion, threats of violence, and forced compassion. When I came to these conclusions, I had an internal shift that was so profound and simple. I will no longer participate in systems I do not support. First, I stopped using banks because I saw the results of the 2008 financial crisis and I learned about the many economic crises created by banksters throughout history. Second, I refused to use a credit card and never attempted to establish a credit line through these banks. I also stopped driving because I didn't want to get a state ID and instead only use a passport. By the end of 2010, I came to understand the nature of war and violence being perpetuated by the American empire and decided I would no longer pay an income tax. I stopped filing and have made efforts to keep my income below the poverty line. I also stopped working jobs which compensated me in the form of a check. Since that time, I have started a couple of businesses on my own without filing paperwork for city licenses, and only accepted cash, silver, or cryptocurrency. All of my income has been in metals, cash, digital payments, or bartering. Obviously, I am still paying a sales tax when I am not shopping in a farmer's market or buying directly from a gray market entrepreneur, but the goal is to take steps toward completely opting out. It doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't come without struggle. Let's take a moment to look at some of these struggles and their potential solutions. First, what are the potential downsides to not using a bank? Before we answer that question, we should note that there are alternatives to the big banks, including local credit unions and co-ops. These institutions are typically more connected to the local community and not involved in economic theft. However, do your research and use these alternatives at your own risk. One criticism of going bank-free is a fear of lack of security when not storing funds in a traditional banking institution. The fact is, you can put your trust in a banking institution and the U.S. government, or you can choose to take personal responsibility and store your money under the mattress, in a safe, in a private bank, or anywhere else you please, so long as you are taking proper security measures. Beyond the security risks, there are also financial downsides to not using banks. I recently received payment in the form of a check for a media gig. Not only was I forced to visit a bank to cash the check, Bank of America no less, but I was taxed $8 by the bank to cash my check for not opening a bank account. Now this problem is easily remedied by ongoing education about the value of not using banks or government-backed money and the power of alternative currencies. Unfortunately, we are still at a point where too few people know and understand these values resulting in limited options in the market. The company that sent me the check is an old media company whose employees are ignorant to agorist philosophy, counter-economics, and digital payment options. The likelihood of my convincing them to pay me in silver or crypto is not high. This is important to remember, because until we have built a completely parallel system 
that offers an alternative to the current paradigm in every area of our lives, we will occasionally have to conduct business with people who are still filing taxes and therefore keep a record of every financial transaction. Another recent issue I've encountered involves the renting or purchasing of property. In my case, I was attempting to rent an apartment in a big city, but these obstacles apply elsewhere as well. Because I have rented through different people for years, it has become increasingly difficult to do so on my own, as I have less and less records to show to potential landlords or realtors. In the most recent case, I found several potential properties, contacted the property owners, and attempted to negotiate my way into a new home. I have no problem paying rent on time, but my lack of check stubs causes issues with individuals looking for traditional forms of payment. Again, when I attempt to explain that I receive money from supporters via Patreon, money via this crazy thing called cryptocurrency, and some money in cash, they usually look at me with a confused expression on their face. I explain that I can show them payments received via PayPal, but that does not seem to satisfy either. From there, property owners tend to ask to see a bank statement. When I say no, they are baffled and then ask for a tax record. When I tell them I don't have that either, they look at me as though I have personally disrespected their mother. By the end of these conversations, I am being told they cannot rent to me because I have no way to verify my income. So what is the solution to these problems? The most obvious solution is education. Those of us who value the idea that all moral people should opt out of immoral systems and create new ones ought to spend our time and energy educating others about the value of such actions. The more people who understand this concept, the more entrepreneurs there are opting out in creating value in the counter-economy. Now, as far as the banking situation, cryptocurrencies are showing the world what digital, decentralized banking looks like. The more energy we put into supporting or creating alternative currencies, digital or otherwise, the less power the centralized banking monopolies have. As far as solutions for renting an apartment when you live mostly outside of the system, I believe blockchain technology offers hope. Blockchain is the peer-to-peer -peer digital ledger technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptos. To understand how blockchain can help, we have to think about why realtors and property owners want to see documentation from a bank or a government. Trust. Security. Due to the massive amount of propaganda promoted in public schooling, most people grow up believing these institutions to be an essential part of life, if not a benevolent force in our lives. We are taught to trust and cooperate with these institutions. The average person does not trust or believe someone is authentic or valuable or rent-worthy if they do not possess such documentation. So imagine if every week, when I am paid for the articles I write, I take a screenshot of the digital payment or a picture of someone paying me cash for a job well done and post it on a blockchain. The blockchain is decentralized, meaning posts cannot be altered or deleted. If I continue to post my weekly income statements on a blockchain, I would have a decentralized and transparent record of my history or any other documents I chose to place on the blockchain. In fact, this could already happen by making posts on a website like Steemit. If the realtor or property owner understands blockchain or is willing to learn, they can feel secure because there is a record of my pay. We could even sign a contract together on the blockchain. This would allow for transparency and security on both sides. I believe solutions like this are the future and we are starting to see this unfold. For the moment, there are difficulties as we agorist pioneers lay the groundwork for the counter-economy and the next stage of human evolution. 
Do your part to create the future by educating yourself and others about agorism and counter-economics. Part 2. Counter-Economics as a Solution to Technocracy The following essays are my original writing combined with Konkin's notes for his final unwritten chapters. I chose not to finish all of his unfinished chapters and instead focused on the areas which I feel have the most potential to educate the reader about counter-economics. I am indebted to Konkin for his notes and inspiration. Chapter 5 Counter-Economics in the Digital Age Up to this point, we have shared the history of technocracy, the strategy of counter-economics, and agorism. We also explored how the counter-economic path has the potential to be the solution to our digital dystopia. Now we will discuss the solutions to living a life as free from the grip of the technocratic state as possible. In addition to being an anarchist philosopher, Konkin was also a fan of science fiction. These two interests merged with his discovery of counter-economics, for it was his appreciation of the sci-fi genre which led him to propose that technology could play a role in freeing the people from the chains of bondage and expand the counter-economy. Konkin died in 2004, shortly before social media, cryptocurrency, and digital encryption became mainstream. Long before Bitcoin or cryptocurrency emerged, Konkin was discussing similar concepts and predicting that new computer technology would facilitate counter-economic activity. However, Konkin was not a fool. He realized that the authorities would use the emerging digital technology to expand state control. As someone who has spent the last seven years promoting Konkin's ideas, I recognize that the technocratic state threatens to remove the ability to safely opt out of the corporate state system. We are in desperate need for solutions to maintain the anonymity and privacy needed to safely navigate the counter-economy under the digital dystopian world we are now living in. It is not clear if Konkin could see the direction in which the world was headed when he left this planet, but I have found myself contemplating this issue, which brings us to the following conversation. What does it mean to be a counter-economist in the age of the surveillance state? How can one participate in the underground economy when Big Brother is always watching? Will it be possible to starve the state once social credit scores become mandatory? Let's start by examining the current landscape of the world concerning digital surveillance and overall privacy. As of 2020, the majority of the developed world has adopted the use of some type of digital technology, including cell phones, tablets, laptops, desktops, or wearable digital tech. The middle class and higher are falling in line with the latest fad of smart everything, surrounding themselves with technology that can listen, record, and or watch their daily lives. From doorbell cameras to home assistants and TVs that are always listening, the masses are voluntarily abandoning privacy in the name of entertainment and convenience. Simultaneously, law enforcement and government agencies continue to claim they need all manner of high-tech gadgets to prevent terrorism and violent crime. Cell phone surveillance tools, license plate cameras, facial recognition cameras, radars that can see through walls, secret surveillance planes, social media monitoring, DNA collection, gate detection, voice detection, and threat scores, these tools are increasingly available to departments willing to pay up. There are also semi-private megacorporations buying up every bit of data they can find on potential consumers. 
This data is used to sell us things we don't need, monitor our daily habits, and will eventually pressure every individual to be obedient to the technocratic state under threat of punishment and exclusion from the digital world. In 2019, consumer tech organization Comparatech found that the United States, China, Malaysia, Pakistan, India, Indonesia, Philippines, and Taiwan were the worst offenders when it came to protecting the privacy of people's biometric data. Comparatech said that these nations use biometric data to a, quote, severe and invasive extent, end quote. Indeed, the technocracy is a growing problem around the world. In the U.S., the Federal Bureau of Investigation has been fighting for years to keep a secret database containing hundreds of millions of face prints from American citizens and non-citizens alike. It is important to note that facial recognition technology is not just about scanning someone's face. Newer software is also learning to evaluate and predict your emotions and state of mind. The FBI has also been waging a war against encryption, fearing that the people might develop an unbreakable code and thus maintain some level of privacy. The U.S. Transportation Safety Agency has begun testing facial recognition technology at select airports for international travelers with plans to expand the program in 2021 and 2023. The U.S. government has expressed interest in expanding the program to all travelers. The plans for this type of biometric control grid in the U.S. were set into motion by the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996 and expanded after the attacks of September 11, 2001. However, there has been some successful pushback against the technocracy. As of December 2019, three different U.S. cities have banned or regulated facial recognition software pending further study. In November 2019, France became the first European country to use facial recognition technology as part of a nationwide digital identity for citizens. The new government app is operated by using facial recognition and will give users access to around 500 government websites. Those who choose not to participate would theoretically be locked out of accessing these government websites. Citizens of India are already finding themselves locked out of the Adar Biometric ID program. Under this system, reports have begun to emerge detailing instances of citizens being refused access to services due to Adar glitches and ultimately dying of starvation as a result. The program launched in 2009 with the goal of giving every single Indian citizen a unique biometrically verified identification number. By the end of 2019, an estimated 1.2 billion Indians were enrolled in the program. Users have their iris and or fingerprints scanned and then receive a unique 12-digit number linked to their biometric and demographic data. They will then use this identification number when getting married, setting up a bank account, paying taxes, signing up for a cell phone contract, or even when starting a digital wallet. Again, it appears obvious that those who find a way to avoid the system will be locked out of mainstream society. China is perhaps the best current example of an advanced authoritarian technocratic state and likely the model for the rest of the world. Another 2019 study from Comparatech reported that eight of the top 10 most surveilled cities in the world can be found in China. By 2022, China is projected to have one public closed-circuit television camera for every two people. The estimated 200 million CCTV cameras are part of a Skynet network active across China. The Chinese government has also started collecting citizens' DNA 
to build a DNA database. The government has come under fire for detention centers built for Uyghurs, a Muslim minority population which has been forced to install a spyware app on their phones and submit to biometric recognition. However, the Chinese government claims that the detention centers are voluntary vocational training centers. In December 2019, the Chinese government implemented a new rule requiring China's 854 million internet users to use facial identification in order to apply for new internet or mobile services. Equally disturbing is the ongoing rollout of the nationwide social credit system. Starting in 2009, the Chinese government began testing a national reputation system based on a citizen's economic and social reputation, or social credit. This social credit score can be used to reward or punish certain behaviors. By late 2019, Chinese citizens were losing points on their score for dishonest and fraudulent financial behavior, playing loud music, eating on public transportation, jaywalking, running red lights, failing to appear at doctor appointments, missing job interviews or hotel reservations without canceling, and incorrectly sorting waste. To raise one's social credit score, a Chinese citizen can donate blood, donate to an approved charity, volunteer for community service, and other activities approved by the government. The Chinese government has begun to deny millions of people the ability to purchase plane and high-speed rail tickets due to low social credit scores and being labeled untrustworthy. This is the world of the early 21st century. If we assume technology will continue to advance exponentially, then it is probably a safe bet that the surveillance and privacy concerns are here to stay. Unless there is some sort of resistance to these dangers, privacy will be completely eroded within a decade. For the moment, these technologies are mostly voluntary. For example, you don't have to buy the latest digital home assistant device, and you don't have to carry a cell phone with you everywhere you go. This means you have the power to decide what type of products and companies you support with your purchases and how you interact with technology. We don't have to blindly submit and opt in to every latest tech update or advancement. The more immediate and threatening element of the technocracy is the state. While corporations are gathering massive amounts of data from individuals who have chosen to purchase or use certain products, the government is able to leverage their perceived legitimate authority to force the populations to submit to biometric technology. History is rife with examples of masses of people being propagandized to work against their own interests. While the collective population may be easily swayed, there will always be individuals who hold out. We, as individuals, can choose to opt out of mandatory biometrics and social credit schemes. But if everyone around us is still opting in, it is likely they will choose not to associate with those who have a low social credit score. Some people will do this out of fear that their own score will decrease for hanging out with untrustworthy types. I can hear it now. You know I love you, man, but if my score drops any lower, I won't be able to take the family out of the country for vacation. Or... I won't be able to get that loan, buy that car, or visit public parks. The list goes on. This is the real power of social engineering. As we outlined above, the technocratic state is growing around the world. This means at some point in the near future, you will have to make a choice. Will you submit to mandatory facial recognition in order to travel? Will you submit to biometrics in exchange for continued access to government services? What will you do when the 5G smart grid is everywhere, from big city to countryside? 
Will you give your car insurance company access to your location for a discounted rate? Are you already using your fingerprints or your face to unlock your cell phone or your home? The answer to these questions will determine your future. I am operating under the assumption that if you found your way to this book, you are at the very least curious about what it takes to live a thriving life that is not under the thumb of the technocratic state. If that is your goal, then you have a few options. One, hold down the fort. This option is for the person that has no interest or ability to leave home for some other, potentially better option. If you are committed to your home or have no other option, then this would be you. You can either waste away and march with the rest of the sheep to the slaughter, or you can try to create change. Find ways to reach others and educate them about the dangers. This might involve fighting for political change on the local level, passing out flyers, phone banking, or social media campaigns. I understand we cannot all be full-time activists, but each of us can find a way to contribute to the goal of creating a community of people who voluntarily choose to opt out of the technocratic state. Of course, the closer you are to a big city and civilization, the harder it will be to avoid the growing technocracy. 2. Exit and Build This involves leaving your base of operations behind and moving to a location with less invasive practices and less technocratic corporate state influence. If you have decided you are living in an area that has no hope and would rather start fresh, then you should exit and build something that reflects your values. This could be done solo, as a couple, with family, and even with friends. Perhaps you purchase land, share living space, or live adjacent to each other in a neighborhood. No matter what the living situation, the intention here is to build a community that would provide some level of safety and privacy for those who opt out of the mainstream technocratic world. I want to stress that this option is not necessarily about bailing on your home. As I will outline in the chapter on the counter-economic underground railroad, Choosing to exit and build before the shit hits the fan might help your close friends and family down the line when it really matters. More on that later. 3. Apathy is death. Of course you are always free to do nothing. Perhaps you see what's on the horizon and decide that A. It's too late to stop the technocracy. B. It's too much work to make an effort. Or C. You are just trying to take care of your own family and live a peaceful life. I could go on, but you likely get the point. It's your life, and you are not obligated to take any action upon learning of the technocracy and the digital dystopia being built. However, I would warn that apathy today will only make life more difficult for the generations of the future. If we want to preserve and expand liberty and privacy for all people, we are going to have to take action in realistic and tangible ways. Of course, we could brainstorm a dozen more options, but generally, I believe all plans can be sorted into one of these three categories. For those choosing option one, it is important to understand that deciding to stay put while attempting to opt out of the technocracy will involve breaking the law at some point. As the state continues the push for mandatory biometrics, retina, fingerprint, and face scanning, and social credit systems are adopted widely, it will become increasingly difficult to operate your life without directly violating the technocratic state's orders. The trick is to determine the potential risk versus the potential benefit. As Konkin once wrote, trade risk for profit. With the understanding that every decision we make is economic, whether it relates to money or not, Konkin recognized that choosing to violate the commands of the state 
was a risk that could result in profit in the form of an increase in liberty in one form or another. So when you choose not to report all of your income on your taxes in order to save money for your family, you are trading a risk for a benefit. In a similar way, if or when the state issues mandatory vaccination orders, mandatory retina scanning, mandatory microchipping, or any other mandatory program, you will have a choice. You can submit to these programs out of fear of punishment or damage to reputation, or you can consciously choose to opt out of these systems. There will be risks and there will be benefits. It is up to you to decide what is best for you and your family. In his unfinished book, Counter Economics, Samuel Konkin described what he calls low-profile and high-profile counter-economics, two different tactics available to those who seek to opt out of invasive systems. While low-profile counter-economics involves discreetly opting out of the technocracy, high-profile is more in your face. Quote, High-profile counter-economics deals with a particular area of state coercion by calling attention to his or her victimization. The more noise, the better. The famed Chicago 8 used publicity to keep themselves out of prison for years, even after their convictions. Civil disobedience trust public pressure to keep them out of jail or to minimize their penalties. Indeed, the state's enforcers are wary of creating martyrs. The very concept of martyr exhibits the power of information. What is a martyr but a corpse with a good story? High-profile counter-economists have higher risks because they are so easy to detect. They gain the advantage of additional information flow from themselves to the rest of the market. To the extent they succeed, they become inspirational. End quote. Konkin said those who pursued both low and high profile simultaneously could do so through a third category, the counter-economic community. Konkin notes the benefits of having allies who are also participating in the counter-economy and opting out of the technocracy. This is why it is going to be important to form some level of a community as a mutual support network that allows for life off the grid. Konkin wrote, quote, One may pursue any degree of notoriety, or to put it another way, freely advertise one's services, within the community of fellow counter-economists while not informing the state, its agents, and of course its informers. To do that, one needs to control the flow of information about oneself, end quote. One of the great insights outlined by Konkin in Counter-Economics is the importance of controlling the flow of information about yourself, in particular, the information flow from you to the state. Konkin says the two obvious ways to escape the state's notice is to not exist, and, if you do exist, don't tell anyone about it. The goal, then, is to reduce interaction with the state and or private companies who want to scan your face, record your life, and force you to submit. There are many ways to approach this goal. For example, Konkin noted that some aspiring counter-economists have chosen to, quote, cut themselves off from contact with anyone who might get to know them, get and stay off all mailing lists, operate through cash and never use banks, and even avoid legal residences, living in trailers as nomads or on neglected land in caves or makeshift structures, end quote. While this may sound extreme to some, for a brief period in the 1960s, these individuals promoted the philosophy of Vanu, or invulnerability toward coercion, and attempted to avoid all contact with the state. Tom Marshall, a.k.a. Ryo, was the main proponent of Vanu, and often wrote about finding his version of freedom 
by completely opting out of society and living solitary in the wilderness or in his RV. Some of those who choose option two may be interested in Vanu, but in my experience, most people seem interested in living with their family or in a community of like-minded people who do not want to submit to the digital prison rather than alone. If any lesson is learned from the proponents of Vanu, it is that opting out is absolutely possible, whether in a high-profile counter-economic manner or an extreme low-profile Vanu lifestyle. For those interested in a deeper look at Vanu, I recommend checking out Vanu, A Strategy for Self-Liberation by Shane Radliff. Both Konkin and Ryo warned of the difficulties facing those seeking liberation and privacy within the city. However, in the increasingly interconnected digital world in which we live, privacy can be difficult even in rural areas. Whether you choose to hold down the fort and build community in the city or town you live, or exit and build your community in a new location, the goal is to limit interaction with the technocratic state. This is where we can learn from the Vanu enthusiasts who talked about interfacing with the rest of society on a selective basis. Konkin says one way to interface with the overground or establishment economy, or mainstream world in general, is to create a fictitious identity who takes the risks. In this case, you can drop this identity at a moment's notice if necessary. In the digital world, it is easy to create an alternative persona online, but it is more difficult to be truly disconnected from your online identity. In my journalism career, I have seen governments track people with phones, cameras, computers, and GPS, and even crack encryption. As Konkin notes, quote, if the state's agents are closing in on this alter ego, as long as you wear the guise, they are closing in on you, end quote. Additionally, anything you gained while using the false identity, accounts, contacts, and property, would be lost. Konkin viewed false personalities as valuable, but ultimately he believed it was necessary to categorize your information flow into a system of layers. For example, at one layer, you must reveal some information in order to interact with the rest of the world. This information can include, quote, that you have a product or service, how much it will cost, what you will accept in payment, how you can be contacted, and when are you or it available. If there are multiple payments, credit arrangements, repeat business, and post-sale follow-up involved, still more information must flow from you, end quote. When purchasing or selling a product, working for an employer, or traveling, you will leave a digital paper trail and also are more likely to face the biometric tools of the technocracy. Again, if you live in a major city, or even a small city, and choose option one, these are challenges you will have to face. In the U.S., China, U.K., France, Australia, India, etc., CCTV cameras connected to 24-hour real-time crime centers and fusion centers keep civilians in most major cities under heavy surveillance. Increasingly, these cameras are being outfitted with facial recognition software. To combat this threat, there are two main strategies that I call Be Invisible and Seek and Destroy. Be Invisible If your goal is to remain low-profile and be invisible, there are a few actions you can take immediately. Stop carrying cell phones everywhere you go. Stop using GPS. Delete social media accounts and apps that track you. Stop using credit and debit cards. Cancel your bank account. Use a credit union if you need to store your funds. Stop working jobs in the mainstream economy. Stop paying taxes.
Now, obviously, some of these options are going to be extreme for some people. It's all about the level of information flow you are willing to accept. Some people can't quit their day jobs or cancel their bank accounts or delete their social media accounts. I get it. This means there will be some level of information about you available to those with the money and the desire to buy it. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. Perhaps your major concern is simply making sure the cell phones and home assistants are not listening to you all the time. So you choose not to buy an Alexa, Echo, etc., and you choose to only turn your cell phone on when you need it. These are personal choices and they will differ with every individual. The point is that you are in control of the data flowing out from you. When it comes to the digital world, there is still an incredible value to understanding how to use encryption. The number of digital devices you use directly correlates with your level of privacy and liberty. If your Wi-Fi, phone, laptop, tablet, etc. are all operating without any type of encryption, you are at the mercy of all manner of bad actors. There is also the matter of off-the-shelf computers being built with backdoors, which allow government and private companies to access your data without a problem. Of course, using virtual private networks is valuable, but documents leaked by Edward Snowden proved that the U.S. National Security Agency can crack these as well. One tool discussed by Konkin that is still valuable is public key cryptography. We don't have the space here to elaborate further, but I recommend learning more about cryptographic privacy and pretty good privacy encryption. I will add one final caveat about digital communication. Assume someone can see it. Even if you are using encrypted messenger apps that promise to destroy your messages instantly, it is a safe assumption that the American and Chinese governments can access it if they so choose. All digital communications can be collected, stored, and analyzed if someone wants it done. Always operate as if someone else can see what you are sending. If something sensitive needs to be communicated, then say it in person in a room without computers, phones, smart devices, or digital home assistants. There are also some practical ways to fight back. In 2019, there were several stories reporting that activists had found ways to fight back against the surveillance grid. In Chile, activists pointed lasers at drones observing their behavior from the skies during massive anti-government protests. Hundreds of lasers pointing directly at the drone caused it to malfunction and fall to the floor with a thunderous applause and cheers from the people. In Hong Kong, protesters also used lasers to fight against surveillance. To fight against facial recognition cameras, the activists began using high-powered lasers aimed at cameras and police. As the corporate state advances, it is likely they will discover how to avoid falling prey to simple lasers, so it is important that the people are always looking for or creating advances in technology that can counter the state. Some companies and designers have recently begun advertising clothing, face paint, glasses, and even certain hairstyles that might be able to bypass facial recognition. Berlin-based artist Adam Harvey has launched two different projects seeking to overwhelm and confuse facial recognition systems. His Hyperface project involves printing clothing with eyes, mouths, and other facial features in an attempt to deceive the software. Harvey also worked on the CV Dazzle project, which sought to use makeup and hairstyle to interfere with the machines. Other artists have suggested that clothing that is shiny, reflective, and can bounce light, as well as military-style camo, could disrupt the facial recognition nightmare 
and render you invisible. Of course, the most practical way to protect your face is to cover it. There are several options available for those interested, including paper masks, the infamous Guy Fawkes anonymous mask, and 3D printed faces designed to give you another identity altogether. However, in China, the state has made masks illegal and seeks to punish anyone who would obscure their identity. This has not stopped intrepid activists from continuing to use facial covers. But again, the point is that if you want to protect your privacy, it will likely involve breaking the law. If a law violates our right to liberty or privacy, then it is the law itself which is unjust, and it should be ignored. However, it should be noted that in a world full of facial recognition cameras, someone with a mask will surely stand out and be detected within moments. The less attention you bring to yourself, the better. Seek and Destroy Before we go any further, please note that this information is for educational and research purposes. You are fully responsible for your actions. Now, for those who are dissatisfied with simply avoiding the invasive technology and playing a digital game of cat and mouse, the seek and destroy option might better suit your needs. We can look to Hong Kong again for another example. In August 2019, activists targeted smart lamps that the local government says are used to collect data on traffic, weather, and air quality. Activists feared the smart streetlights had been equipped with facial recognition software so they tied ropes around the poles and pulled them down to the ground. There are about 50 smart lampposts installed around Hong Kong, all of which have cameras and sensors. These are the same kind of smart lamps being installed in smart cities around the world. Again, I recognize this might sound extreme to some, but I have met a diverse crowd of people who have expressed that if the technology comes to their neighborhoods, they will tear it down. This brings us to the topic of monkey wrenching, a form of direct action originally popularized by elements of the radical environmental movement, specifically Earth First and the Earth Liberation Front. Dave Foreman, co-founder of Earth First, outlined the tactics of monkey wrenching in his book Eco-Defense, A Field Guide to Monkey Wrenching. Foreman's book itself was inspired by Edward Abbey's book The Monkey Wrench Gang, which tells the story of four individuals who used sabotage to protest environmental damage in the southwestern United States. Between 1992 and 2007, the Earth Liberation Front began sabotaging construction projects that threatened wildlands and forests. Their tactics included tree-sitting, nonviolent blockades, civil disobedience, and disrupting machinery. One need not agree with the philosophy or even the cause of the ELF and Earth First to recognize that monkey wrenching can be applied to a number of different causes. I would say what the Hong Kong protesters did to the smart lamps was monkey wrenching in defense of privacy and liberty. As always, you decide the risks versus the potential benefits. To those who are uncomfortable with the idea of destruction, remember that every ending breathes a new beginning. We can build a world that respects privacy and individual liberty on top of the ashes of the technocratic state's facial recognition cameras. These are just a handful of suggestions on strategy and tactics for maintaining some level of privacy and liberty. As Konkin correctly noted, the fight for privacy is a, quote, dynamic, evolving system. It is a nonviolent form of an arms race, where one side cracks the code and the other develops a new system to top the old one, end quote. Digital technology is a tool, and like every tool, it can be used for good or for harm. In the hands of the technocrats, Digital tech is used for control, spying, social engineering, manipulation, 
censorship, and propaganda. In the hands of free people, technology can be used to heal, empower, educate, and build a better world. However, this better world will not happen without a conscious effort to build it. We also need a healthy skepticism towards emerging technologies which are sold as the panacea to humanity's turmoil. Whether you choose to stay put and build in your town or vacate the state and build elsewhere, it will be necessary to participate in some level of community, if only for survival. Our best chance for survival is to band together with others who choose to opt out of the digital future and form new communities which respect privacy and liberty. Chapter 6. The Counter-Economic Community. Freedom Cells. Throughout his writing, Samuel Konkin refers to the benefits of existing with an agorist or counter-economic community. Although Konkin never completed a detailed outline of how this community might operate, he does make a few helpful references. In the outline to counter-economics, under the heading Chapter 15, Psychology Counter-Economics, Konkin wrote, quote, Mutual reinforcement, going beyond individual self-reliance and self-acceptance, the concept of individuals working together counter-economically, developing trust and honest interdependence, will finally be developed, after popping up briefly all over the book. Beyond relationships and affinity groups, we come logically to the idea of an active sub-society and or movement of counter-economists. And that brings us to part two. End quote. Unfortunately, Konkin never wrote part two or elaborated on the community angle. The reality is that whether you choose to hold down the fort or exit and build, community is going to be necessary to survive the technocracy. I have spent the last few years developing the concept of freedom cells, which I believe lines up perfectly with the counter-economic vision. Freedom cells are peer-to-peer -peer groups made up of seven to nine people, with eight being ideal, organizing themselves in a decentralized manner with the collective goal of asserting the sovereignty of group members through peaceful resistance and the creation of alternative institutions. Freedom cells can be seen as a very specific type of mutual aid group where agorism and counter-economics play a key role. The name comes as a response to state propaganda around terror cells. I am consciously choosing to reclaim the language and build cells that spread freedom. Also, freedom cells act like cells in a body that are performing important tasks individually while also serving the goals of the larger organism. From this view, every freedom cell is playing a vital role in spreading counter-economic activity while also forming a part of the larger network that will foster exchange of ideas and products between different cells. The number of eight participants is drawn from the research of Bob Podolsky and his book Flourish, an alternative to government and other hierarchies. Podolsky is the protege of researcher John David Garcia, who spent 20 years researching how to maximize the creativity of a group of people working together on a joint project. After performing hundreds of experiments, he came up with an optimized model based on groups of eight, which he called an octet or octologue. The idea is that a shortage of individuals would leave the group limited in capability but with too many people, the group is bogged down with disorganization and a lack of focus. Podolsky recommends forming octologues made up of four men and four women, guided by specific ethical tenets. Although freedom cells are also promoted as groups of eight individuals collaborating together, 
They differ from Octologs in that they are heavily focused on decentralization. While Bob Podolsky has outlined a detailed vision of how an Octolog should operate, I hope to provide examples of applications for freedom cells without telling other freedom cells how to operate. The needs of each community will naturally differ. Beyond a general agreement to respect each other's right to be free of coercion, I believe freedom cells should not be monopolized by the vision of a single cell. I caution the reader to remember that these ideas are a guide and not the final word on the literally limitless possibilities. In the beginning, individuals can work together to accomplish goals such as every group member having three months' worth of storable food, encrypted communication, a bug-out or exit-and-build plan, and ensuring participants have access to firearms or some form of self-defense and know how to use them safely and proficiently. All the while, cell members make themselves readily available to render mutual aid to their cell in whatever form that may be necessary. After you have established seven to nine people within a freedom cell, each individual should be encouraged to then go on their own and start another freedom cell, especially if the original members are not living in close proximity to one another. Living reasonably close to each other will allow for a quick response time in emergency situations. Once again, Every member of the freedom cells should be encouraged to start additional cells. Eventually, the original cell would be connected to seven or nine additional cells through individual members for a total of 70 to 90 people. Imagine the strength and influence these cells could exert once connected in the digital world via freedomcells.org and in the physical world where possible. The creation of the Freedom Cell Network also serves as a social network for travelers looking to do business in the counter-economy with other like-minded people. Through building and supporting alternatives such as local food networks, health services, mutual defense groups, and peer-to-peer economies and communication networks, Freedom Cells will be better able to disconnect and decouple themselves from the technocratic state. Once groups become large enough in numbers, it becomes quite possible for participants to opt out en masse and to secure their liberty. This is the model we followed within the Houston Freethinkers Activist Community and the Freethinker House community space. We began by building gardens and selling the crops via the next-door community. We also sold juice and kombucha tea made using fruits harvested from trees of neighbors who understood our goals. We started with a small group of about three to four people, meeting and discussing the goals and themes of our cell. The goal is to have skills and knowledge diffused throughout the group. This way, if one person leaves the group, the knowledge is not taken from the cell. For example, knowing that every cell member can perform CPR, use encrypted communications, shoot a gun, or communicate the counter-economic message may be important for your cell. Obviously, certain individuals will be more skilled or knowledgeable in some areas, but there are foundational skills and information that should be common among all cell members. Our group also used the structure to educate each other on specific topics of interest. Perhaps your freedom cell meets and agrees to learn everything available on permaculture or a particular philosophical concept. You can then choose to divide the topic up among your cell and return two weeks later to educate each other. Perhaps your cell joins the Cell 411 app and responds to emergency alerts in your community. Several cells could join together to cop watch or actively resist and disarm violent police or other agents of the state. A freedom cell could connect with other cells for a covertly organized guerrilla gardening action. With a constant barrage of fake news coming from the establishment media, 
a freedom cell could quickly research and debunk incoming propaganda. Freedom cells can organize alternative exchange networks that encourage local artisans and entrepreneurs to sell their unregulated crafts and accept alternative currencies. In a shit-hits-the-fan scenario, freedom cells could have prearranged bug-out locations stocked with supplies. If several freedom cells were equally prepared, you now find yourself with a small community of empowered individuals as opposed to being forced to defend yourself alone. When it comes to dealing with the technocracy, freedom cell members can make commitments to limit the amount of information which is communicated via digital technology, saving important conversations for face-to-face. Additionally, members can share tips for evading the watchful eyes of the state. However, the real value of using freedom cells to build the counter-economic community is strength in numbers. If your decision not to adopt the mandatory biometrics or social credit goes from frowned upon to illegal, you will face punishment for choosing not to participate. As we noted earlier, the goal of social credit schemes is to socially engineer society to be blind, dumb, and obedient followers of the technocracy. The state is going to use the technocracy to promote the idea that anyone who chooses to opt out is the problem. Even the most strident individualist will find it hard to survive off the grid once the technocracy is complete. Of course, the social credit score will also discourage friends and family from associating with those who have been blacklisted. The solution is to collaborate with other individuals and families who choose not to submit. The reasons for opting out will vary from person to person. Some may opt out to avoid mandatory vaccinations, others to practice their religious beliefs in peace, while still others will exit to protect the privacy of their future progeny. Frankly, if the choice is mandatory obedience to the smart grid or a life outside of mainstream society, It will take a coordinated effort by many determined individuals to create a world of networked communities where individuals can thrive, raise their families, conduct business, and trade while still living free. I believe the concept of freedom cells can help those of us who will do anything to be free from the web of the technocracy. In conclusion, I offer these 12 tips for building freedom cells as a starting point for launching your group. Please adapt these to the specific needs of your community. 1. Understand your motivation. I find it valuable for every person considering starting a cell, circle, hub to know why they are pursuing such a goal. What are your motivations and interests? Knowing this before you start a group will save you time. Finding ways to opt out of the technocracy is an obvious goal, but what else drives you? 2. Identify potential candidates. Are they mentally, physically, spiritually sound for your goals? 3. Discuss common themes. What are the driving forces bringing the group together? 4. Identify strengths and weaknesses. Take an honest look at the strengths and weaknesses of each individual as well as the group as a whole. 5. Evaluate desired level of freedom versus security. Every individual may have a different desired level of freedom and as such will have different aims and acceptability of risks. When it comes to the technocracy, this is especially important to remember. How free do you really want to be? How much privacy do you want to keep? What will you do to attain such a goal? 6. Set short-term and long-term goals. What can your cell accomplish in three months, six months, a year? Set goals as a group and hold each other accountable. 7. 
Mindfulness training. Incorporate practices like nonviolent communication training and group meditation into your cell. 8. Accomplish goals. Document each goal successfully met by the cell or individual members. 9. Ongoing group education communication. Continuously expand your cell's knowledge, skills, and supplies. 10. Promote market goals and accomplishments. Use the power of social media when safe and marketing to let the world know how much more prosperous you are in the counter economy. 11. Identify strategies for creating income independence. Leverage the power and number of your cell to create counter-economic income that cannot be taxed by the state. 12. Network with other cells. The key to opting out of the technocratic state is building the counter-economic community. This means not only your immediate community of allies, but the larger network of cells in your city, state, province, nation, and the global community. It is up to you to make an effort to network with other activists and free thinkers. Chapter 7. The Counter-Economic Underground Railroad Since 2016, I have focused on developing potential solutions for liberating hearts and minds from the grip of the technocracy. I have come to the conclusion that whichever path you choose to take, proper precautions and emergency plans are necessary. The cliché, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, applies here. While I have offered suggestions to those who choose to hold down the fort, it is imperative that some individuals choose to exit and build in the event that the fort collapses. These forward-thinking individuals may choose to move out of major cities to rural areas with less invasive practices or move to a nearby region with relatively more liberty and privacy. The goal is to establish a network of free communities that could serve as safe havens for refugees of the technocratic state. This is what I call the counter-economic underground railroad or simply the Underground Railroad. This counter-economic Underground Railroad is modeled after the original Underground Railroad of the American colonial era. In the late 1700s, former slaves, abolitionists, and sympathetic civilians formed a decentralized network of safe houses that allowed slaves to escape from bondage. Most of the freed slaves made their way north to Canada, but there were also safe houses helping people escape south to Mexico. It has been estimated that as many as 1,000 slaves escaped per year between 1850 and 1860. The Underground Railroad was inherently counter-economic because under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, law enforcement in free states were required to help slaveholders recapture runaway slaves. Fortunately, many officials had the good sense to ignore the unjust law and help former slaves make their way to freedom. This was a conscious decision to violate the state's demands and trade risk for a perceived benefit. In the notes to his unfinished chapters, Smuggling Counter-Economics and Human Counter-Economics, Konkin mentions the Underground Railroad as an example of people smuggling. In Smuggling Counter-Economics, he writes, quote, Smuggling people is introduced to be used in the Human Counter-Economics chapter with Underground Railway of the Civil War period, end quote. It is important to note there is a difference between smuggling a person voluntarily and involuntary human trafficking done under the threat of violence. Smuggling typically involves choosing to transport goods which the state has deemed illegal or avoiding taxes on the transportation of said goods. People or human smuggling involves one individual paying another 
to be smuggled across international borders. While smuggling typically involves some form of contractual agreement that ends upon arrival to the destination, human trafficking involves the use of force, abduction, fraud, or coercion. This is often used to induce forced labor or sexual exploitation. Simply put, smuggling becomes trafficking when the element of force or coercion is introduced. Under Konkin's counter-economic theory, human smuggling is legitimate because it does not involve the initiation of violence or coercion. In Human Counter-Economics, Konkin provides a little more detail of his vision. Quote, Underground railway slaves moved counter-economically. Variants of it still in use. Refugees covers counter-economics of freeing people from greater tyranny. Minority groups are covered here first, how they survive in hostile societies, and the sub-societies they form, usually overwhelmingly counter-economic. End quote. Although we don't have the finished work, it is interesting that Konkin mentions minority groups and how they survive in hostile societies and the sub-societies they form. In the age of the technocratic state, those choosing to opt out will be the minority groups surviving in hostile societies. The sub-societies we form could be the free communities which keep the flame of liberty burning into the future. Imagine the Freedom Cell Network expanding to both urban and rural environments around the world. Those who stay in the cities do what they can to combat the technocracy and educate others of the dangers. Those who exit build communities which opt out of various levels of invasive technology based on their preferences and also educate others about the benefits of unplugging. The two strategies work together to pull as many minds out of the technocratic matrix as possible. Regardless of whether you see value to counter-economic theory, there are practical lessons to be learned from the Underground Railroad. The individuals who chose to open their homes to runaway slaves made a conscious decision to risk arrest and imprisonment so they could help a fellow human being. The police and government officials who disobeyed the state joined the counter-economy when they realized that doing what was right was more important than doing what was legal. The allies, who smuggled former slaves across international borders, also risked their freedom for a just cause. These are the same decisions I believe many of us will face in the coming years as the technocratic state continues to grow. The individuals who choose to exit and build now can purchase land, build housing, and lay the foundation of a more free society. While this will initially serve to provide for their own families, if the shit hits the fan, the Underground Railroad will help slaves of the technocracy escape to these communities. This is the role I am choosing to take. I do not believe my place of birth, the United States, is salvageable. I do not see this as abandoning ship or giving up hope, but rather I am consciously choosing to build the future I desire with the understanding that others may need help in the near future. I believe by exiting the city, moving to a less invasive region of the world, and building on land, I will find my inner peace and have an opportunity to help others. This might not be the particular role you choose, but there are other ways we can each be of service. As in the original Underground Railroad, we will need sympathetic individuals within the hostile society who are willing to house and transport those seeking safety. We will need low-level employees of the state willing to take a bribe or simply turn a blind eye to the counter-economic Underground Railroad. We will need white-hat hackers willing to create technological tools to combat the omnipresent eyes and ears of the smart grid. We will need individuals who leave behind comfort to develop the network of free communities that might soon house refugees of the technocracy. Finally, 
we will need organizers who can help connect each of these individuals in as decentralized a manner as possible. I do not claim to know exactly how this counter-economic underground railroad will develop. The only thing I know is that it must develop as soon as possible. If we choose to sit by idly while the technocratic state comes into view, we are abandoning future generations of our human family. If you are reading these words, you have the opportunity to be a part of the solution. The only way we will make it through the digital dystopia is to put aside minor differences and build the world we know is possible. Chapter 8. Final Thoughts on Surviving the Digital Dystopia In late 2009, I began questioning the world around me and wondering who was running the show. I consumed as much material as I could find on the history of government, banks, the ruling class, and power. For a moment, I was convinced that the end of the world, a government collapse, a police state, or something of that sort was coming. Over time, my fears receded as I took a more reasoned look at the world around me and also took note of the many positive advances unfolding in that world. Unfortunately, as I write these words, my fears of an impending doom have returned. Only now I see the impending threat coming from what I am calling the technocratic state. This state is unlike any other previously seen in humanity's history. There is an elitist, totalitarian ruling class made up of the technocrats and mad scientists combined with digital technology not available to past totalitarian regimes. This does not bode well for the future of liberty for all people. The modern conception of liberty is barely 300 years old itself, and it appears as if humanity may have trouble maintaining and expanding such a necessary principle. Apparently, humanity is still deciding whether concepts like privacy and liberty will continue to thrive. Will liberty expand to all lands of the earth, or will the tyrants continue to reign? I don't pretend to know exactly how the future is going to turn out, but I do know the outcome will be determined by those who choose to step up and take action. The direction will depend on the values and the principles of those who get engaged and seek solutions. Those who sit on the sidelines will merely be cogs in someone else's machine. The time for passivity has come to an end. If you do not want to lose privacy and eventually all liberty, you must act to protect yourself and your loved ones. The technocracy is coming into full view, and every day it becomes more clear that the masses will swallow the poison without hesitation. Opting out of the conveniences and pleasures of the smart grid will not be a popular choice. Saying no to mandatory biometric systems will involve some level of risk. However, it may soon be necessary to make these decisions to preserve your privacy and liberty. I have attempted to outline why I believe Samuel E. Konkin's theory of counter-economics can be applied to the battle against the totalitarian surveillance state. Counter-economics provides a philosophical foundation to the simple act of saying no to immoral or unjust state rules and doing what you must to thrive. The facts are all there. When the state moves to prohibit an activity or a substance, they create a counter-economy of people who will voluntarily choose to violate the state's demands and do what they feel is necessary to survive and thrive. This counter-economy is one of the largest economies in the world, and none of it is controlled by a centralized authority. The power of counter-economics lies in recognizing the potential of a mass opting out of systems that do not align with our values and are inherently immoral. Just as in the original Underground Railroad, I am calling for the creation of safe houses, 
the transporting of refugees, and the conscious objection to laws which try to criminalize those who help runaways. The conductors of the original Underground Railroad did what they knew was right because it mattered more than blindly following words on pieces of paper. We should take inspiration from this example of counter-economic activity and consciously opt out of the technocratic control grid. If we form freedom cells which promote counter-economic activity and encourage skepticism towards the technocracy, we may have a chance to form a competing society of free communities that choose to reject various levels of invasive digital technology. We cannot face this monumental task alone. It is of extreme importance that we find a way to form alliances and coalitions in the interest of saving our collective liberty. I believe opting out of the technocratic state should go hand-in-hand with opting out of the military-industrial complex, the central banking system, the school system, the corporate media complex, and the pharmaceutical complex. This will not be easy or even possible for all people in all situations. Do what you can, where you can. Refer back to vertical and horizontal agorism when you need ideas for opting out of a wide range of institutions and organizations that do not represent your interests. I also recommend spending time going over my explanations of the hold down the fort and exit and build strategies to see where you think your path may lead you. It is ultimately up to each individual to decide their future, and the totality of each of our choices will set the path for all of humanity. I have attempted to understand how to motivate others to take action, and I have found that leading by example is the best way to inspire others. We need not all take the exact same route to achieve success. In fact, the more diverse the field of individuals employing the counter-economic ethic, the better off we will be. Each of us will be inspired and motivated by different stimuli, and we will each reach and inspire different people. Not only are we all motivated differently, but our habits and lifestyles will also shape our ability to be free from the technocratic state. The level of privacy and liberty you maintain in the coming years will be decided by your willingness to change, adapt, and abandon habits which weaken your ability to be free of systems of oppression. This struggle between what you want, liberty, and your actions, a variable dependent on you, decides whether your desires become reality or remain a fantasy. Level of freedom desired plus willingness to change equals your actual experience of freedom. I call this the freedom formula, a simple equation in which your level of freedom desired plus your willingness to change and adapt equals your experience of liberty and privacy. To determine the best path for yourself, it is important to understand what your goals are and what your ideal vision of liberty and privacy looks like. This is part one of the formula. Only after you clearly identify what you want and what you do not want can you begin to ask what you are willing to do to achieve this goal. While some might call this a sacrifice, the reality is we have long been trading our invaluable privacy and liberty for convenience and pleasure. Do you value the convenience of skipping the line at the airport in exchange for your face print more than you value privacy? Is it worth losing privacy just so you can download the latest apps and trends? As you imagine the answers to these questions, I humbly request that you take a moment to consider the consequences of apathy and complacency. Future generations have never been more dependent on those living today to correct the course of humanity. We have reached the point where children are growing up without any sense of a world without the internet, without smartphones, and without a smart grid. 
These generations will likely lack a true understanding of the value and importance of privacy because they are being raised in a culture and time where privacy is hardly a concern. As artificial intelligence improves, the 5G smart grid goes live and the Internet of Things springs into existence. We are going to face difficult decisions regarding privacy. If we choose to be the ones who planned ahead, opted out, and formed free communities, we can leave future generations a world that respects the principles of liberty and privacy. While my optimism is lacking as of late, I do believe there is still time to lay the foundation for the counter-economic underground railroad and build the better world we know is possible. Part 3. Exit and Build to Overcome the Great Reset Post-COVID-19 Updates The following chapters are based on lessons learned between March 2020 and November 2022. Some of the insights come from my direct experience, while others have been crowdsourced from the Freedom Cell Network and broader international freedom community. As noted in the first edition, it is imperative that all individuals remain adaptable and agile. We cannot predict the exact path the coming years will take, but what is clear is that those who opt to exit from the slavery systems and build-slash-support new systems that respect individual liberty will have a greater chance for survival and, most importantly, thriving in the face of tyranny. Chapter 9. COVID-1984 From the start of the COVID-19 operation, there were those who resisted mandates for injections, lockdowns, and masks, and other tyrannical actions taken by governments around the world. By 2020, the term COVID-1984 had become a popular meme in awakened circles, particularly among the working class, indigenous communities, and health freedom activists. A portmanteau of COVID-19 and 1984, George Orwell's infamous book about a totalitarian world, COVID-1984 seemed to reflect the general consensus of the broader resistance movement, namely that governments around the world showed their authoritarian colors when given the chance through a so-called global pandemic. When someone says, my life was pretty boring until 2020 and COVID-1984, the meaning is understood immediately by those who spent 2020 through 2022 exposing and pushing back against government overreach and corporations who provided the infrastructure for invasive contact tracing and vaccine passports. As I will outline in the remaining chapters, tens of thousands not only pushed back against the technocratic state, but some were actually motivated to spend the pandemic years focusing their energy on exiting and building. However, before we take stock of the positive fruit born out of these recent challenging times, we need to document what exactly took place to justify the label COVID-1984. From the very beginning of the COVID-19 panic, we witnessed many of the world's governments enact authoritarian practices under the guise of stopping the spread of COVID-19. In January 2020, the Chinese government began welding people in their homes to stop them from potentially contaminating others. As the panic spread around the world, all too eager politicians had the excuse needed to push policies that restricted freedom of movement and speech. A limited list of some of the actions we witnessed includes the following. Checkpoints for travel. Temperature screenings at airports. Contact tracing apps cataloging individuals' movements and interactions. 
emergency-slash-executive orders supporting forced vaccinations, isolation, and quarantine. Involuntary quarantine centers-slash-camps. Children in plastic bubbles or containers at schools and daycare centers. Censorship of alternative viewpoints on the origins of COVID-19 and the validity of containment measures such as isolation, masks, lockdowns, vaccines, etc. Rating of businesses for not closing. Arrests of people violating lockdowns. Ankle monitors for those violating quarantine orders. Roving police searching for people not in the proper places. Thermal drones watching people from the sky. Vaccine mandates for travel, work, and school. Digital vaccine-slash-immunity passports to confirm injection status. Facial recognition technology used to locate people violating lockdowns. A quick glance at this list reveals the instrumental role digital technology played in monitoring the population, suppressing unpopular views, and enforcing mandates that, in many cases, are now being adjudged illegal or unconstitutional. The attempted use of this technology to solve a worldwide crisis, whose origins might well be traced to the same players, illustrates the technocratic mindset. In fact, the entire COVID-19 operation is a technocrat's wet dream and a free person's nightmare, as most of the world experienced firsthand. From the trust the experts slogans to the dancing nurses and the attempted deification of Anthony Fauci, the world's health agencies, governments, and megacorporations were happy to do their part to cement the idea into our minds. Trust us. Don't question the narrative. And anyone who does should be shunned for endangering the collective and killing grandma. I spent much of COVID-1984 researching the various international health bodies and agencies, especially the World Health Organization. What I and millions of others came to understand was that the current medical and so-called health institutions are largely monopolized and dominated by individuals with ties to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The WHO, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies in the UK, Public Health Foundation of India, the Wellcome Trust, Gavi the Vaccine Alliance, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes for Health, and on and on, hundreds of organizations purporting to look after their respective nations' health concerns are deeply indebted to the Gates Foundation. This information is heavily documented in various independent media and increasingly in the mainstream media by journalists like Tim Schwab. Frankly, anyone denying the massive influence of Bill Gates' money is speaking out of ignorance. Of course, the Gates Foundation is simply copying from the playbook of its parent organization, the Rockefeller Foundation, whose history is so riddled with controversy that its spokespersons had to apologize for its eugenics past in 2021. The Rockefeller family has used its foundation for generations to shape public policy regarding education, the environment, and public health. Since this book's purpose is a focus on solutions, I won't elaborate on the history of the Rockefellers, their takeover of the education system and the medical industry, the faux green revolution, their role in the growth of pesticide use, GMOs, etc. But rest assured, the Rockefeller and Gates Foundations have played an instrumental role in monopolizing and manipulating many key sectors of the modern world. These two organizations, along with the International Organization for Public-Private Partnerships, 
the World Economic Forum, represent the public face of the predator class, who operate what I call the pyramid of power. Essentially, they are the most recent architects of the technocratic state. By no means do the names or faces of these organizations represent the top of the pyramid of the 0.01%. They are mere puppets for the agenda, after all. But the narrative they spin is a useful guide for anyone trying to navigate the rough waters ahead. When Klaus Schwab, head of the WEF, talks about the fourth industrial revolution, in which digital technology is no longer separate from humanity, but rather coexisting or even merging with us like never before, you might want to listen. When the political puppets discuss the Internet of Bodies or Internet of Humans and express excitement about plugging populations into the metaverse, we ought to pay attention. The Great Reset The predetermined path we are being led down is known as the Great Reset, and it was announced in early June 2020 by the World Economic Forum. It is worth noting that on October 18, 2019, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation partnered with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the WEF on a high-level pandemic exercise known as Event 201. Event 201 simulated how the world would respond to a coronavirus pandemic that swept the planet. The simulation involved 65 million people dying, mass lockdowns, quarantines, and censorship of alternative viewpoints under the guise of fighting disinformation. Participants in the exercise even floated the idea of arresting people who questioned the pandemic narrative. The launch of the Great Reset was supported by Klaus Schwab, the founder and executive chairman of the WEF, England's King Charles, Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, and Kristalina Georgieva of the International Monetary Fund. The kickoff was truly an international event, with the participation of Ma Jun, chairman of the Green Finance Committee at the China Society for Finance and Banking and a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the People's Bank of China. The event was also supported by Bernard Looney, CEO of British Petroleum, Ajay Banga, CEO of MasterCard, and Brad Smith, President of Microsoft. In an opinion piece published in the Globe and Mail, Schwab provided more details on the goals of the Great Reset. Quote, COVID-19 lockdowns may be gradually easing, but anxiety about the world's social and economic prospects is only intensifying. There is good reason to worry. A sharp economic downturn has already begun, and we could be facing the worst depression since the 1930s. But, while this outcome is likely, it is not unavoidable. To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country, from the United States to China, must participate, and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. End quote. Schwab goes on to describe several crises facing humanity, including rising government debt, unemployment, and increasing social unrest. Combined with COVID-19, Schwab claims, these crises will leave the world less sustainable, less equal, and more fragile. We must build entirely new foundations for our economic and social systems, Schwab writes. 
He details the three main components of the Great Reset Agenda, specifically fairer market outcomes, investments in equality and sustainability, and harnessing the innovations of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The FIR is another pet project of Schwab's, which he announced in December 2015. To put it simply, the FIR is the digital panopticon of the future. In this world, digital surveillance is omnipresent, and some members of the human family choose, or are compelled, to use biotechnology to alter and purportedly improve their lives. The FIR also involves the so-called Internet of Things, a world in which nearly every device and person is connected to the Internet, which itself is powered by 5G and 6G networks. Ubiquitous mobile supercomputing, intelligent robots, self-driving cars, neurotechnological brain enhancements, genetic editing. The evidence of dramatic change is all around us, and it's happening at exponential speed, Schwab wrote for the announcement of the FIR. Of course, for Schwab and other globalists, the FIR also lends itself to more central planning and top-down control. The goal is a track-and-trace society, wherein every person has a digital ID, eventually implanted in the body, and all transactions, financial, medical, etc., are logged, and social malcontents are locked out of society via a social credit scheme. Schwab's vision is precisely the technocratic state I am warning about in this book. Agenda 2030 The World Economic Forum has made it clear that the Great Reset is about capitalizing on the COVID-19 crisis and using it to accelerate the 2030 Agenda and Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. The UN SDGs are a collection of 17 interlinked goals designed to be a, quote, blueprint to achieve a better and more sustainable future for all, end quote. The SDGs were set in 2015 by the UN General Assembly, with the intention of achieving them by the year 2030. The SDGs are part of a larger resolution known as the 2030 Agenda, or Agenda 2030, ostensibly aimed at ameliorating climate change. While the UN is often touted as a tool for establishing productive relationships between nations, in truth, the UN SDGs and Agenda 2030 are part of a deeper agenda to monitor, control, and direct all life on the planet. While the corporate media and aligned political class promote the UN as a tool for elevating the collective health and well-being of the world, a public that has grown increasingly skeptical of centralized institutions are thankfully beginning to question the true role of the UN and the WEF. The actual agenda of the WEF and the UN is to establish the worldwide technocratic state, in which supposed experts and technologists make decisions for the vast majority of people in the name of saving the environment. Of course, the crisis itself does not matter. The predator class will use a pandemic, the climate, or any other scenario they believe will help them achieve their goals. These technocrats speak of building a world that is more sustainable, regenerative, diverse, inclusive, or even decentralized. But we must recognize that these deceivers do not actually care about these concepts. Also, it's important to note that just because the UN or the WEF use these words deceptively, the concepts on their own are not negative or something to be feared. In fact, there are many permaculturists and environmentalists who focus on true sustainability or regenerative agriculture 
without buying into the Great Reset plan. Of course, the technocrats are able to fool the masses with their rhetoric because the average person is compassionate and wants to help the people around them and the planet. By weaponizing our compassion and desire to stave off extinction, which we are always told is right around the corner, the technocrats are able to stealthily build a slavery system while selling it as a utopia to an unsuspecting public. On November 11, 2016, the WEF and Forbes magazine published a short essay entitled, Welcome to 2030, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better. In the article, Ida Alkin, Denmark's former minister for the environment, imagines what life might be like in 2030. The year 2030 was chosen because of its importance to the achievement of the UN SDGs. Although the essay is several years old, most people have become aware of it, and the phrase, you will own nothing and be happy, since the WEF announced the Great Reset Agenda in June 2020. Over the last two years, countless researchers, podcasters, and journalists have shared their concerns with the public in an attempt to avert the world described by Ida Alkin. Alkin is listed as an agenda contributor for the WEF and was the first Danish politician chosen for the Young Global Leaders Program. She has also released three other blog posts imagining the world of 2030. Upon reading these four essays, one comes away with the understanding that some of what Alkin and the WEF describe actually sounds beneficial. After all, who wouldn't want a more walkable and bikeable town or city? Who doesn't appreciate more trails and trees? However, when you get past the buzzwords and promises of utopia, one recognizes that the world of 2030 described by Alkin and the WEF is one where technocrats centrally plan every aspect of society. It is a world with no privacy and no private property ownership, with compulsory digital IDs, central bank digital currencies, and social credit scores determining one's status and access to goods and services. In short, you will own nothing, but be happy you won't. Not if you value liberty and autonomy, that is. Alkin makes these points clear in her 2016 essay when she notes that everything you considered a product has now become a service, and in our city we don't pay any rent because someone else is using our free space whenever we do not need it. My living room is used for business meetings when I am not there. She also notes that shopping has turned into choosing things to use, and that sometimes she lets the algorithm do it for her because it knows my taste better than I do by now. A major component of this agenda is the shift of the financial system further toward digital currencies and digital identification cards, and eventually implantable RFID chips. Since the launch of COVID-1984, we have learned the name of the digital game. Specifically, we have seen dozens of nations' central banks announce pilot programs or initiatives to study CBDCs. These digital currencies will not be private, distributed, or decentralized. CBDCs will, instead, be the economic tool by which the predator class engineers society in the direction it chooses. CBDCs will allow the technocratic state to turn off an individual's access to the digital slave currency should he or she do or say something that the state deems dangerous. With the advent of nanotechnology and implantable IDs, this could even be done in response to what a person imagines, what Orwell in his novel called thought crime. 
If you don't think this can happen, remember that in February 2022, we saw the government of Canada freeze the bank accounts of key individuals involved in the so-called Freedom Convoy, a protest involving semi-trucks and other vehicles blockading key sections of downtown Ottawa. On February 14th, Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, announced that the government would invoke the Emergencies Act, a never-before-used law which gave Ottawa exceptional powers in a declared state of civil unrest. This act froze hundreds of accounts of organizers and influencers who helped promote the protests. The Canadian government claimed that a total of 7.8 million Canadian dollars had been confiscated from these accounts. This example perfectly illustrates the potential for the technocratic state to lock you out of the institutions you depend on in order to force compliance. This tactic will be used again. Just like we saw massive campaigns to pressure citizens to accept COVID-19 vaccines, we will see similar campaigns designed to marginalize and vilify those who opt out of the control paradigm. Thus, the sooner you reduce or eliminate your dependence on the banking system, the better off you and your family will be. Once again, this is the world of 2030 and beyond imagined by the puppets of the predator class. This is the technocratic state we are exiting from. I want to address any readers who might feel a heavy heart and a weary soul when faced with the difficult situation our species is approaching. I empathize with the overwhelming nature of the beast we wrestle with. However, I take heart in knowing that for all the horrors witnessed during COVID-1984, it has been the greatest gift to the truth and freedom movements around the world. The harder they push, the more people will want to exit. Those of us who see what's coming must take concrete steps to lay the foundation for the parallel world that future generations will depend on. Together, we can accomplish this seemingly insurmountable goal. With all that said, clearly there is a need for additional strategies and tips in light of what the world experienced during COVID-1984. The following chapters will update the concepts of the Freedom Cell Network and the Counter-Economic Underground Railroad, with experience gained over recent years. I will also share specific recommendations for getting out of the banking system, fighting future lockdowns and travel restrictions, and some basic information related to food independence. Finally, I will implore all who take my words to heart to envision an alternative to the 2030 Agenda. We must collectively create the parallel world we know is needed. Chapter 10. Leveraging the Freedom Cell Network for Homeschooling, Unbanking, and Permaculture As noted in the original chapter on the counter-economic community, I have been involved in promoting and experimenting with the concept of freedom cells since 2016. I first learned of the concept from fellow Texas activist John Bush in 2015. It was John's original conception, what he called the Central Texas Mutual Aid Society, that excited me to spread this message. Taking inspiration from his vision, I began to produce videos about the various ways freedom cells could be applied. I also started organizing a freedom cell in Houston, Texas. I gave speeches on the topic at events all over the United States, as well as Mexico and Costa Rica. I first put the concept of freedom cells into writing in my book, Manifesto of the Free Humans, in 2017. Slowly but steadily, 
the freedom cells concept permeated the minds of activists around the world. We launched an early website in 2016 and a second version in late 2019. Overall, the Freedom Cell Network as a movement was blossoming and helping redirect some of the restless energy of the freedom movement into a focus on solutions. In 2019, I began reflecting on the impending dangers posed by facial recognition, social credit scores, and all-pervasive digital cameras, and asking what solutions might be available to avoid or at least survive this dystopian nightmare. I decided to write OptOut in an attempt to share the agorist philosophy and freedom cell strategy with a broader audience. The first version of the book launched in late January 2020. I immediately began speaking publicly at conferences and festivals promoting the work. When I first learned about COVID-19, I did not initially suspect that what was taking place was related to the technocratic agenda I had just finished writing about. However, within weeks, I realized what was unfolding and recognized that this book was warning people about something taking place right before their eyes. Needless to say, the ideas within the book resonated with people from all walks of life. So, while the Freedom Cell Network was thriving before 2020, it was not until COVID-1984 that the movement and website saw an exponential increase in interest and participation. Our website went from around 1,500 members scattered around the world prior to March 2020 to over 34,000 people using the site post-COVID-1984. Also, in the spring of 2020, the messaging app Telegram saw a rapid increase in users, including members of the freedom movement, who had been banned from other social media platforms. The Freedom Cell Network was a part of this growth. We started the Freedom Cell Network directory on Telegram, a listing of the hundreds of cells around the world that we had become aware of. The movement has become extremely active in parts of Mexico, with more than 15 freedom cells around that country since 2020, and in Texas, where the movement began in 2015. Other active regions include parts of Australia, India, Canada, Portugal, Germany, and Philadelphia in the U.S. I consider the Freedom Cell Network to be a broad term for people practicing the concept via the Freedom Cell's website, Telegram, and other online platforms, as well as those who practice it strictly in person without using these digital tools. Altogether, we estimate that there are more than 40,000 people associated to some extent with the movement and concept. Not only has the concept of freedom cells grown, but the counter-economy itself has also seen an increase in participation from the masses. As I will outline in the coming chapters, Konkin's theories about the masses seeking to avoid tyranny and choosing to bend or break the law as part of this effort proved to be correct. We saw this plainly with the growth of the black and gray markets for fake vaccine passports and COVID-19 PCR tests. In late 2020, the Freedom Cell Network launched our first event, the Greater Reset Activation, a five-day solutions-oriented event meant to offer a direct alternative to the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. Whereas the WEF and the technocrats focused on central planning, we focused on decentralization and grassroots organizing. We called the event an activation because it was specifically organized with the goal of motivating, inspiring, and activating those attending and watching online to take concrete steps in their lives to exit and build. The response to the activation has been overwhelmingly positive, and we will continue to organize it annually for as long as it is needed.
Finally, in September and October 2021, I traveled the United States for 60 days, hosting 30 events, where I shared the message contained within this book. I also did a speaking tour in Mexico in March and April 2022. I share all of the above to say this. I have spent the last seven years working on Freedom Cells. In that time, I traveled the United States, gave talks internationally, and collaborated with activists all around the world. In these last two years particularly, I have heard from Freedom Cell members far and wide, detailing their wins and losses, their struggles, and their accomplishments. The following tips are sourced from my own experience, as well as that of various members of the Freedom Cell Network. Please use them, adapting them as necessary to your local situation. Lessons Learned Five Focus Areas In speaking with members of the Freedom Cell Network, I found several key areas where people were having success. These include helping people feel less alone, providing a sense of community, withdrawing their children from public schools and homeschooling, protecting and educating future generations, pulling their money out of the banks, protecting finances, starting to grow their own food, protecting food slash staying alive, opting out of big tech and digital tech altogether, protecting privacy and sovereignty. I believe each of these areas provides insight into the ways in which the technocratic state seeks to gain ground. Specifically, each area corresponds with a specific attack vector, which the technocratic state will attempt to take advantage of. For example, the predator class would love to have a population that is isolated and depressed, indoctrinated through public education, dependent on the coming central bank digital currencies, dependent on big agriculture and factory farms, mindlessly consuming digital technology that mines them for data and monitors their every move. Thus, if Freedom Cell members are having success in these areas, they are likely to fare better than those who are not prepared. It would also be wise for new Freedom Cells to focus on these key areas first. Let's take a moment to elaborate on each topic and outline specific steps that can be taken. Eliminating Isolation For the last 13 years of my activism, I have consistently heard one thing from people everywhere I've been, whether at a meeting, conference, or festival. Before I came here, I felt so alone. Millions of people have been conditioned to believe that asking questions about power is promoting conspiracy theories. Our friends and family are being taught to believe that anyone questioning narratives spoon-fed by the corporate media is someone to be ridiculed, avoided, or even disowned. Naturally, this programming leads to division, separation, and a lack of understanding. Families are broken, relationships are torn apart, and some have even faced legal repercussions for expressing their political opinions. This is one of the main reasons the Freedom Cell Network continues to grow. The technocrats are seeking to isolate us not just via authoritarian laws and invasive technology, but also through informational, psychological warfare. Additionally, COVID-1984 showed us what governments are capable of, and more importantly, the weaknesses they will focus on. If individuals feel they are tackling these challenges alone, it might lead them to a place of despair or anger. After all, who would want to learn the truth of technocracy and the Great Reset only to face it alone? With tyranny and technocracy on the rise, 
Having a local support network has never been more important for our collective health, liberty, and success. In addition to Konkin's thoughts on the importance of having a community with which to expand counter-economic activity, the morale boost alone is a huge reason for forming groups. At the very least, the Freedom Cell Network has filled a need for belonging and social interaction among like-minded people. While this might seem like a small thing, it should not be overlooked. The technocratic state will seek to manipulate, gaslight, and humiliate the masses until they comply with its plans. We saw this plainly with COVID-1984. Some people might not have the strength to endure losing relationships or being cast out of polite society as a consequence of defending their beliefs. In the absence of a strong support network, we might lose more hearts and minds to the technocrats' hive mind. We cannot afford to lose more friends, loved ones, and potential allies to their slavery system. Thus, we must build a network of cells, hubs, hives, and circles, which make it perfectly clear that those questioning the psychopaths in power are not alone. In fact, we are many, and our numbers are growing. Protecting the Children Another result of COVID-1984 was the enormous growth of interest in homeschooling, unschooling, world schooling, and forest schooling. While each of these education methods have unique histories and tactics, generally speaking, they each share the goal of avoiding indoctrination by state education. Some parents decided to take their kids out of school because they disliked the growing emphasis on digital remote learning, while others removed their children because of attempts to mandate masks and shots. Whatever their reasons, millions more parents around the world are now considering removing their children from state-run education centers and pursuing alternative forms of education. In terms of freedom cells, I have heard from people who use the website or telegram chats to meet other like-minded parents interested in homeschooling. These freedom cells tend to be made up exclusively of parents and their children. Due to the cost of homeschooling curricula, tutors, and or taking time off work, some parents have used freedom cells to pool their financial resources and hire a tutor for several children. This not only reduces costs for parents, but it also gives the children much-needed social interaction. These parents can also co-create curricula, take field trips, and decrease the workload overall. While I am not here to tell any parents how to raise their children, it is evident that more and more people have come to their own conclusions and now recognize that government schools are intended to be centers for indoctrination. These institutions put a priority on obedience and repeating information as opposed to critical thinking and creativity. I also understand that for many people who are living paycheck to paycheck, the idea of having their children at home or hiring a tutor is simply beyond their current reach. I empathize with this reality. If this is your current situation, and you truly cannot take the kids out of public school and partner with other parents to hire a tutor, then I encourage you to get even more involved in your children's lives. Do what you can to know exactly what the schools are attempting to put into your children's minds. Perhaps getting active in the school board or other local school bodies will be valuable to some people. Regardless of your situation, we must recognize that the minds of the children are under attack from the predator class. We witnessed this during COVID-1984, and rest assured we will witness it again in the not-too-distant future. Freedom cells can be a tool for protecting the children and ensuring they continue to thrive. Becoming unbanked 
to avoid the CBDC future. I stopped using banks almost as soon as I started. Like many people in the modern world, I opened a bank account when I turned 18, in 2003. However, by the time the financial collapse of 2008 was rocking the world around me, I had already soured on banks and decided not to use them again. A couple years later, I would learn about the crimes of the banking families and the economic slavery created by the U.S. Federal Reserve System, as well as similar central bank schemes around the world. I finally had the details to affirm why I intuitively did not trust the banking system. I never looked back. As my journey has continued, and my understanding of the fractional reserve banking system, debt as slavery, and the crimes of the banking families has deepened, I have come to see just how important it was for me to opt out of the banking system at a young age. It has not been an easy journey, and I absolutely anticipate it will only become more difficult as the technocracy rises. The imminent arrival of numerous CBDCs on the scene is another sign that those who aim to be free from the slavery financial system need to make a plan to get out. Over the years, I have received many requests to provide a step-by-step approach for getting out of the banking system or becoming unbanked. While this is not financial advice, and I dare not assume to tell you what to do with your life, I have done my best to provide some tips and suggestions for exiting the blood-soaked banking system. Remember, this is not going to be easy, and it will involve changing your lifestyle and planning ahead. 1. Set a deadline. If you really want to get off the banks, you need to set a deadline. This process is going to take time to rearrange accounts that might be currently connected to your bank account. I recommend giving yourself six months to a year, depending on how entangled you are with the matrix. Don't give yourself so much time that you forget about the goal and don't follow through. Remember, this is your freedom on the line. 2. Become unbanked as a group. This process will be easier and more effective if multiple people do it together. If you are involved with a Freedom Cell or another activist group, ask if anyone else is interested in becoming unbanked. You can also ask members of your family if they understand the threat posed by CBDCs. Collectively, we can have more impact on the banks by divesting from their services. 3. Take an assessment of how intertwined you are with the banks. Before you can start unplugging from the banks, you need to know how ingrained they are in your current lifestyle. How many different accounts and services do you have connected to your bank? Do you have dozens of accounts set up for automatic pay? Is your paycheck direct deposited into your banking institution? Once you work out how many accounts are connected, you can begin to consider alternatives for this current setup. For example, would your employer be willing to pay you in cash? Or, at the very least, would he or she pay you with a physical check, which you can cash without using a bank? You never know if you don't ask. When it comes to other connected accounts, consider whether they are all necessary. Perhaps this is also a chance to downsize and stop paying for things you don't really need. Also, in some parts of the world, you can still go in person to a physical location, such as a grocery store, convenience store, gas station, utility company, etc., to pay your bills. Once you have all the accounts listed and have considered what options are available to you, move on to the next step. 4. Decide what to do with your money. 
Once you have a list of all your automated pay and direct deposit accounts, it's time to start thinking about what you are going to do with your money. One obvious move is to take it from the bank to a similar institution, see below, that is less offensive to your principles. However, arm yourself with information, as many of those institutions might have similar technocratic goals as the mainstream banks. Another option is to take your money out of the bank and keep it at your home in a safe. Again, make a plan, find a suitable safe, save up the cash while cutting your banking ties, and make a move when ready. I often joke about hiding cash under your mattress if you have no better option. In all honesty, this is not a bad choice considering the alternative of leaving your funds in the hands of the predator class and their banks. If you have extra money, and you'd rather do something with it other than give it to the bank or let it gather dust, I strongly encourage you to use it to invest in yourself. Use those funds to take courses in subjects you have been wanting to learn. Pay particular attention to learning skills that might make you more useful or valuable in a difficult situation. This could be related to permaculture, beekeeping, self-defense, gardening, etc. Anything that empowers you and gives you a sense of purpose. You can also use extra money to buy tools that will be useful in an emergency situation. Finally, if you feel comfortable and versed in the technology, you can purchase and use decentralized private cryptocurrencies like Monero. 5. Find half-steps in intermediaries. If you are still in need of a way to pay bills or send money online, you have options. Different regions of the world have different options available. Depending on where you live, the companies might differ, but the services are usually comparable. Credit unions and similar organizations. Credit unions operate similarly to banks, but tend to give members more of a say in the direction of the institution. You could connect accounts that were previously plugged into your bank to the credit union. However, remember that this is meant to be a stepping stone, not a final destination. Online payment accounts. Firstly, this is absolutely not an endorsement of PayPal, their investors, or any similar companies. This company has already shown its willingness to ban certain accounts or deny services based on political beliefs or on popular opinions. Quite simply, this is a half-step, an intermediary move on your way totally out of the banking system. With that said, in North America, you can use a PayPal account to transfer funds between individuals without a bank account. You can also order a PayPal debit card that allows you to pull money out of an ATM or spend it straight from your account. In the same way you connect your accounts to your bank, you can do something similar with PayPal or an analogous site. As of late 2022, companies offering similar services include Wise and Revolut. I do not endorse these companies, I am simply acknowledging them as options. Once again, the caveat is that this should not be seen as a final step. PayPal and their services are still under the same banking and debt system via MasterCard as the traditional banks. Wire transfers. Western Union is one of the oldest ways to transfer money around the world. The company has been offering wire transfer services for over a hundred years and allows an individual to send money to another part of the world where the receiver goes to a Western Union office, often in grocery stores, to pick up his or her cash. Of course, these services do have fees and they can often be substantial when transferring large amounts of money. For places in the world without access to Western Union, there are many other companies that offer similar services, including World Remit, Remitly, etc. 
This option will not solve all of your banking problems, but it will allow for sending and receiving money without a bank. 6. Final Considerations on Unbanking Without a bank account, you will now need an alternative method for cashing your paycheck, if you receive one. This often means relying on check-cashing businesses, which often have high fees. This is a trade-off for not supporting the banks and choosing to take more control of your finances. There will be other trade-offs and inconveniences. I continue to believe that the number of humans who successfully avoid the technocratic state depends entirely on the eternal battle between our principles and convenience. If you made it this far and have successfully made the changes listed above, you will inevitably encounter further roadblocks as you continue pursuing this path. I can't possibly prepare you for every single one of them, but I do know that having a strong support network will once again make this easier. One brief example from my personal life involves ride-sharing apps. As of late 2022, many ride-sharing apps and food delivery services such as Uber and Lyft no longer allow riders to make payments without a bank account. I learned this because I previously used PayPal for these services as a half-step, as described above. In the past, I have been able to use food delivery apps by selecting PayPal as the payment method. However, in recent months, I've noticed that this is no longer an option, even when my PayPal account and card have plenty of funds. This has left me unable to order food, a minor inconvenience, and sometimes stranded without a ride, a bigger inconvenience. There are currently no perfect solutions for removing yourself from the banking system while continuing to pay bills the way you have become accustomed to. I will say that private cryptos solve many of these problems and, when done right, can offer protection from prying eyes. For those interested in pursuing that route, I encourage you to learn about Monero and localmonero.co. However, because of the possibility of internet disruptions, one must be prepared for the potential to lose anything that exists only in the digital realm. Finally, continue to vote with your dollar by choosing to avoid businesses which eliminate cash payments or require QR codes or smartphones to make a purchase. We still have the power to send a message by choosing not to passively accept or participate in these systems. Permaculture and Decentralized Food Production By now, it has become incredibly clear that the food supply and the concept of food itself is under attack. Millions of people around the world are dealing with rising food prices, inflation, often deliberately weakened supply chains, and food that continues to lose its nutritional value. There's never been a more important time to become proactive when it comes to your food supply. Freedom cells are a useful tool for connecting with others in your area who likely have similar concerns. As a group, you might choose to begin learning about topics like permaculture. Permaculture is a portmanteau of permanent and agriculture. It refers to an approach to designing communities and perennial agricultural systems based on relationships found in nature. Permaculture-based systems have the potential to be far more productive and much less energy-intensive than conventional agriculture. It has also expanded into a philosophy on how humans interact with the world. Permaculture was first developed by Austrian farmer Sepp Holzer on his farm in the early 1960s and was expanded by Australians Bill Mollison and David Holmgren during the 1970s. Essential to permaculture are the ideas that agricultural systems should not require a lot of work to maintain, should improve the land, 
and should produce in ways that provide for humans, animals, and other local ecosystems. Much of permaculture itself is based on indigenous food systems and lifeways, which existed for thousands of years prior to industrial farming. If numerous freedom cells in an area take up permaculture and build backyard, front yard, and community gardens, this has the potential to create local food stability and independence. As this happens with cells all around the world, we could see the emergence of a parallel system of food production, one that is based on decentralization and a more healthful diet. Your Freedom Cell can choose to watch permaculture documentaries or read more about centropic agroforestry. You can also pool your resources to arrange a permaculture design course as a group to maximize your money and knowledge. A Freedom Cell could even decide to combine the produce harvested from each other's gardens and create a community-supported agriculture business, where you sell produce directly to your neighbors. Unplugging from the Big Tech Matrix The corporate titans of Google, Microsoft, and their ilk are literally building the infrastructure for the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the Great Reset Nightmare. Their influence pervades computer operating systems, mobile operating systems, search engines, cloud infrastructure, and more. This is why it is necessary to begin abandoning big tech tools and devices. This means finally giving up Google Maps and Documents, breaking up with Microsoft operating systems or Apple computers, and even severing your relationship with the big wireless firms. This is another area that is easier said than done. Your level of success in leaving behind big tech might directly correspond with your level of tech addiction. That said, here are some basic steps I recommend. 1. Get off big tech phones and computers. Check out companies like Above Phone for non-big tech solutions for your digital life. You can also learn how to de-Google phones and devices so you can do it for your community. Look into operating systems like Divest OS and Graphene OS. 2. Stop using big tech apps. When you consider alternative phones and devices, they often come loaded with apps that do all the same tasks you're used to, email, videos, messaging, minus the spyware. You can also find alternatives to YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Microsoft. You simply need to make the effort. Check out the F-Droid store and other alternatives to the big tech outlets. You can validate trackers in your apps using the Exodus Privacy Project. 3. Stop using big tech operating systems. If you decide to buy an alternative to a Google, Microsoft, or Apple computer, you don't want to ruin your effort by loading a big tech operating system. Choose Linux-based alternatives, which are increasingly replicating the user experience from the big tech giants. Check out takebackourtech.org for more information on this. 4. Keep a discerning eye on new tech developments. Digital technology is a tool that humanity will continue to use one way or the other. I encourage you not to turn a blind eye to technology because of the steps being taken by the predator class. There will continue to be developments that empower and uplift humanity, just as there will be emerging tech that threatens our very lives. My humble suggestion is to make use of digital technologies while we can, but never put your complete faith in these tools. They can and will be taken away if they ever truly become a threat to the technocratic state. The five topics above are vital to remaining free 
as the technocracy and transhumanist agendas become obvious to all. Ultimately, it is up to each of us to decide how we will interface with digital technology, implantable and injectable devices, and even biotechnology that can alter your very genetic code. We will witness friends and family who fully opt in and become part of the hive mind. We will also become painfully aware of the difficulties that face those of us who choose to opt out and take another path. For the moment, the challenges facing the counter-economist are merely inconveniences and annoyances. Soon enough, however, we will be in a time when it will be nearly impossible to survive, that is, eat, drink, or work, without being a part of their slavery system. Thankfully for us, we are not sitting around and waiting. We are building the parallel economy, the parallel networks, and the parallel society. In closing, I will remind you again of the Be Invisible approach I mentioned in Chapter 5. This path is only for those who are stringent about their individual privacy and prefer to be as below the radar as possible. I have given you some ideas above, but ultimately you will need to be creative, adaptive, and flexible if you choose this route. I recognize that these steps are not easy and cannot be done overnight. It is up to you to develop a plan for your specific situation. Set targets and goals and stick to them. If you seek to stay off the radar of the technocratic state, here are the steps you need to begin taking as soon as possible. Stop carrying cell phones wherever you go. Stop using GPS. Delete social media accounts and apps that track you. Stop using credit and debit cards. Cancel your bank account. Stop working jobs in the mainstream economy. Stop paying taxes. Chapter 11. The Counter-Economic Underground Railroad Lives In the original chapter on the Counter-Economic Underground Railroad, I outlined how a new version of the original Underground Railroad would need to be created as the technocracy rises. I imagined that such a concept would mimic the original railroad in terms of safe houses, escape routes, and participants willing to bend or break the law. What I failed to imagine was that the early stages of such a railroad would come into existence in 2020, once again in response to COVID-1984. The lockdowns implemented by governments around the world caused hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, to migrate to different nations that were less restrictive and authoritarian. These migrations happened across Europe, North America, and even Australia, where some lucky people with dual passports were able to escape from the authoritarian impulses of that former, arguably current, prison colony. In the case of Canada and the United States, many people chose to escape to Mexico, one of only a handful of nations that never implemented testing, quarantine, or shot requirements for visiting foreigners. The flood of Canadians entering Mexico was most notable in the Yucatan, where refugees were able to find direct flights to Cancun and surrounding areas. For two years, Canadians, Europeans, Americans, and Australians made their way to Mexico via air and land. Throughout that period, travel restrictions ebbed and flowed, but what remained constant was the belief that Mexico offered a more liberated option for those leaving behind their families and homes. The people's desire to vacate areas with increased state and corporate oppression adds further credence to Konkin's theories. They were heavily predicated on the idea that the average person has an aversion to tyranny and will find a workaround to avoid said tyranny 
especially when it is a direct challenge to their status quo, as we saw with the lockdowns. However, the reality is the predator class vision will require an overhaul of society, which will inevitably clash with the hopes and dreams of hundreds of millions of people. It is in this clashing of values where our greatest chance for liberating ourselves from the predator class lies. If the people are inconvenienced and their daily routines are interrupted, there will be a conflict with at least some portion of the population. This is what we witnessed during COVID-1984. In September 2020, the first version of the counter-economic underground railroad was launched with a trip from Houston, Texas to central Mexico. What this entailed was a somewhat public, completely legal caravan of vehicles traveling from Houston, Texas, across the border into Mexico, and down into the central part of the country. This project would eventually become an initiative of the Freedom Cell Network. As of September 2022, we have completed over a dozen caravans back and forth between Texas and central Mexico. In fact, the similarities between Texas and Mexico have grown in the last two years. This is due in part to the Texas government's COVID-19 policies relating to masks, lockdowns, and injections being less restrictive than in most other U.S. states. There was an internal migration within the U.S. that saw thousands of Californians and New Yorkers leave for Texas and Florida. This naturally led to a growth of the freedom communities in these states, especially for the Freedom Cell Network in Central Texas and Houston. In the same period, the Freedom Cell movement in Mexico exploded, with dozens of cells forming across the country. The members involved with these cells include refugee expats and local Mexicans who are awake to the Great Reset agenda. Taken together, the growth of freedom cells and the truth-slash-freedom movement in general, on both sides of the Texas-Mexico border, is a hopeful sign for the future of liberty in these locations. Clearly, not everyone in Mexico or Texas is awake to the technocratic state, but the presence of more people who are questioning these narratives could bode well for the coming years. I highly encourage any readers who are living near a border with another nation, or even another city, which might be a potential escape route at a future date, to begin the process of, perhaps discreetly, establishing relationships on both sides of the border. I'd like to share some insights for anyone else who might consider starting a similar project in their area. Rest assured, if the technocrats get their way, there will be a need for a counter-economic underground railroad across Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and South America. 1. Plan your route. At the moment, what we are doing is legal. All we are doing is offering to meet people at a predetermined location, Houston, and leading a caravan to the border. From there, we help with paperwork, especially for those who cannot speak Spanish, and continue on to our first destination for the evening. At this point, the people following us are free to go their own way if they have plans, or if they have no specific destination, they follow us to central Mexico to settle in until they make their next moves. Altogether, the trip takes two days of driving. 2. Have a vetting process. The people who join the Counter-Economic Underground Railroad must sign up through the Freedom Cells website. Once they are on our list, they receive periodic updates about the upcoming trips to Mexico. Those who are interested are asked to fill out a survey about their plans. The survey asks how many people are in their party, where they are traveling from, if they have a final destination, and if they have room for others. From there, we send out a private link for a group call prior to the actual trip. This gives us a chance to answer any last-minute questions 
and virtually meet those considering joining us. The reason we do this is because it is inevitable that we will run into someone unstable or simply a difficult person. We want to do our best to filter those people out. Also, sometimes people see leaving their homes for a new place as a way to escape their problems at home. Unfortunately, we do not have the time to be everyone's therapist, and we do not want to unintentionally bring someone down who has a tendency toward drama. There is, of course, the ever-present danger of infiltration by government agents who seek to do us harm. Taking some time to vet potential riders can reduce this possibility. 3. Change up your meeting location from time to time. After the survey and the vetting call, we provide caravan participants with a meeting location. We usually meet early in the morning so that we can get to the border in the early afternoon and our first destination before nightfall. You might consider changing your meeting location periodically, or even every caravan. This could prevent random people from showing up because they have learned of the meeting location. 4. Use walkie-talkies to communicate between vehicles. Depending on where you are traveling and how far the distance, you might experience areas without cell phone reception. Having a quick and easy way to relay information to and from the lead vehicle about rest stops, gas stations, police, etc. is vital. Obviously, as the technocracy increases and we come to a place where only those with digital IDs and enough carbon credits are allowed to travel without harassment, the idea of a counter-economic underground railroad might truly go underground. However, we currently have a window to lay the foundation for counter-economic underground railroads around the world. This might involve establishing connections on both sides of the border of the state or nation you intend on traveling to and from. Eventually, there will be a need for safe houses on both sides of the border, where supplies, food, and a hot shower can await those traveling. This infrastructure will not pop up overnight, and the communities that choose to get organized now will fare the best. Chapter 12. Fighting Lockdowns, Immunity Passports, and Travel Restrictions In this chapter, I will focus on lockdowns, immunity or vaccine passports, and various travel restrictions. We will discuss how to prepare for these strategies, which are sure to be used against us again. First, let's define what is meant by lockdown in relation to what we saw the last two years. Incidentally, lockdown is a term used in correctional institutions to punish disobedient prisoners. Generally speaking, a lockdown involved the forced closure of businesses and schools, travel restrictions, and in the worst cases, limited ability to leave one's home. The lockdowns were a convenient way to silence critics of COVID-19 policies by shutting down mass protests as well as another method for advancing the technocratic digital dystopia. The forced closing of schools and businesses gave various industries an opportunity to sell surveillance technology like facial recognition cameras in an alleged effort to fight the spread of COVID-19. Even with the days of COVID-1984 appearing to be fading away, we must remember that lockdowns will be used again. In fact, as early as September 2020, the term climate lockdown was used by Mariana Matsukato, professor in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value at University College London and chair of the World Health Organization's Council on the Economics of Health for All. Matsukato wrote, quote, Under a climate lockdown, governments would limit private vehicle use, 
ban consumption of red meat, and impose extreme energy-saving measures while fossil fuel companies would have to stop drilling. To avoid such a scenario, we must overhaul our economic structures and do capitalism differently. End quote. It should be clear that, regardless of the reason advanced, the lockdown tactic will be utilized again. Thankfully, though, this is another area where COVID-1984 validated Konkin's theories on counter-economics. As a result of the closing of schools and businesses, more people sought products and services in the gray and black markets. For example, in Chapter 10, I wrote about the nexus between the Freedom Cell Network and the homeschooling community. This community experienced a huge boost in response to the restrictive policies at schools and the push to conduct classes via electronic media. People felt the crunch of the state and the unpalatable education options and opted to pursue an alternative outside of the state's control. This is a perfect example of a legal counter-economic move within the gray market. Another affirmation of Konkin's theories pertains to freedom to travel. Travel restrictions imposed by governments and airlines led to the near-instantaneous creation of a counter-economy for forged versions of vaccination cards and PCR test results, which were needed to cross most international borders. Many people began sharing paper versions of vaccination proof from a number of different countries. Some people even sold actual official CDC cards that had been leaked by someone on the inside. I heard rumors that some visitors to Mexico used an easily forged negative PCR test document to avoid having the real test probes shoved up their nostrils. This illustrates the benefit of employing the exit and build strategy in nations that are behind in terms of technology and the advancing technocratic state. Mexico, parts of Central and South America, and areas of Africa fit into this category, whereas most of the modern world has already succumbed to the reality of the Internet of Things, in which paper documents are rapidly disappearing. Building a life and community in the so-called developing world can, at least by space and time, to mount a defense against the encroaching global technocracy. Some will argue that individuals who choose to use fake vaccination cards or PCR tests are tacitly condoning or participating in these systems. While I absolutely think this is a sound and logical argument, I also do my best not to judge the choices made by others in such times of high stress and intensity. However, now that we have seen what possibilities lie in front of us, we ought to consider what we will do next time. Imagine, at the moment you are reading these words, that the Great Reset Plan is in a temporary pause, or, as some see it, we are in the eye of the storm, the calm, if you will. There's no way to know how much time you have, and it's important not to live in fear or panic. It's also important to recognize that the more steps you are taking to move away from the technocratic state, the less reason there is to be in a state of anxiety. On the other hand, if you are fully aware of the situation we face and are choosing not to take action, well, that might be a reason to feel overwhelmed. Staying free is not easy, and it will require time, energy, money, and commitment. So what will you do to prepare for a climate lockdown or another staged pandemic? One critical step is to make a move while you can, if that's the best strategy for your situation. Sometimes the best step one can take is to vote with your feet and move to another city, state-slash-province, or nation where there is relatively more freedom. This is often a major component in the exit and build strategy I outlined in earlier chapters. 
If you witnessed your hometown turn into a statist, authoritarian hellhole, you might want to reconsider whether this is the place you want to raise your children. This option will likely feel out of reach for many people reading this. I fully acknowledge the difficulties faced by millions around the world who live paycheck to paycheck or are dependent on government services. I do not wish to dismiss anyone's struggles or challenges. I do wish to encourage more struggling individuals to consider what's at stake and decide what exactly you are willing to give, time, money, energy, blood, sweat, in pursuit of staying free and ensuring that the coming generations have a chance at living in a free world where individual liberty, bodily autonomy, and self-ownership are respected. As explained earlier in the Freedom Formula, you must know what you are after and what liberty means to you and your family, and combine that with what you are willing to do to achieve that vision. The sum of those two variables will determine your actual experience of freedom. If you work 70 hours or more per week to take care of your family, I imagine you're extremely exhausted come the weekend. Maybe you only get one day off a week, and you would prefer to spend it resting or enjoying yourself in nature. However, if you truly want to make your move to a freer place, and you manage your time effectively, you can do it all. You will still be tired at the end of the week, but if you are able to carve out even one or two hours a week to dedicate to developing an entrepreneurial skill or launching a side hustle, you can bring in extra income while also increasing your opportunities for counter-economic activity. Frankly, if you want to move and you are living on limited funds, it is going to take focus and dedication. With these, you can succeed, and you can make the changes you believe are best for you and your family. Moving is not the only option available. The counterpart to the exit and build strategy is what I call hold down the fort, or what John Bush calls build and exit. If you are dedicated to your current location, or plan on saving up cash until you can exit, this would be for you. What can one possibly do to prepare for another lockdown? Will it be possible to function within society without a digital health certificate to affirm one's compliance with the technocracy? The answer remains the same as when I first asked whether it will be possible to be a free human in the face of an all-consuming technocratic state. Yes, there is hope to evade these slavery systems, but we must do what we can to get outside of them as soon as possible. Whether one chooses to exit and build or build and exit, collectively we must create new systems and modes of living that are not dependent on the technocrats' vision of the future. These include systems of education, food production and distribution, defense and security, technology, finance, and even our networks of emotional and spiritual strength and support. I believe that Freedom Cells will continue to be a major contributor to building these parallel networks and services. This could mean some members of Freedom Cells privately and covertly making contacts with friendly doctors willing to provide immunity passports in the event of another pandemic. This could also mean becoming acquainted with your local hacker, who might have some ideas on document forging and or gaining access to databases to add names to the roles of the vaccinated. Having highly computer-literate individuals in your cell could also facilitate access to databases related to carbon credits and social credit scores. Obviously, these activities come with certain risks. Another option is to simply continue to build out your local and regional Freedom Cell support network. Make sure you have dozens of families growing their own food, trading together, 
using precious metals or Monero, homeschooling, abandoning big tech, learning self-defense techniques, and building face-to-face connections. This would guarantee that no matter what comes next, pandemic or climate lockdown, cyber pandemic, power grid interruptions, etc., you will have a strong support network in place. This means that even if your ability to travel outside of your city, state, or country is restricted, you will be less impacted than the average person who did not plan ahead. In fact, you might even be in a position to help others around you. If more people actively engage with the concept of freedom cells while focusing on unplugging from the technocratic state, we are bound to see the continued creation of whole new systems, which allow the people to transact financial value, educate their children, practice their spiritual beliefs, and grow their own food in peace. This doesn't mean that the technocrats will make it easy. We should count on no mercy or respite. We should prepare for the coming generations by blazing a trail, establishing a model for what a life lived outside of the slavery systems can be. We must be an example to those who have lost their way in this technological world and help them find their way back to humanity. The Parasite Stress Theory We must also be aware that, just as we saw with COVID-1984, our brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers can all potentially be turned against us. They can and will be propagandized to believe that those who do not go along with the pandemic or the climate crisis or the latest engineered war are the enemy of the people. In 2021 and 2022, Professor Matthias Desmet's theory of mass formation came into the zeitgeist, with many researchers believing that they had found a psychological explanation for what we witnessed during the pandemic. Why were some people aggressively obedient to the state's measures, and even violent toward those who questioned the narrative? What were the conditions needed for millions of people to blindly follow measures that were lacking in a scientific basis? Mass formation appears to provide an explanation for at least some of these behaviors. I also want to turn the reader's attention to a study I found in 2020. The study, Pathogens and Politics, Further Evidence that Parasite Prevalence Predicts Authoritarianism, provides a deep understanding of how humans react to perceived threats and how that relates to the type of government people will accept. The study focuses on the parasite stress hypothesis, which proposes that when a species faces parasites and diseases, its values are shaped by the experience. In this context, parasite is used to refer to any allegedly pathogenic organism, including bacteria and viruses. The theory states that, depending on how a disease stresses people's development, it can lead to differences in mating preferences and even wholesale changes in culture. Proponents of the parasite stress theory also note that diseases can alter the psychological and social norms of societies. According to a parasite stress hypothesis, write psychologists Damien R. Murray, Mark Schaller, and Peter Sudfeld, quote, authoritarian governments are more likely to emerge in regions characterized by a high prevalence of disease-causing pathogens, end quote. They define authoritarian governance as, quote, highly concentrated power structures that repress dissent and emphasize submission to authority, social conformity, and hostility towards outgroups, end quote. Due to the invisible nature of disease-causing parasites, attempts to control the spread of a disease, quote, 
historically depended substantially on adherence to ritualized behavioral practices that reduced infection risk, end quote. The researchers also found that society tends to promote a collectivist worldview, favoring obedience and conformity from the population in the presence of parasites. The researchers examined two different studies, which themselves were analyses of previous works on the parasite stress theory and the implications for authoritarian tendencies in governments and individuals. The first study showed that parasite prevalence strongly predicted the likelihood that individuals would express authoritarian personalities. The second study focused on small-scale societies and found that parasite prevalence, quote, predicted measures of authoritarian governance and did so even when statistically controlling for other threats to human welfare, end quote. The researchers concluded that, quote, these results further substantiate the parasite stress hypothesis of authoritarianism, and suggest that societal differences in authoritarian governance result in part from cultural differences in individuals' authoritarian personalities. End quote. The study also indicates that individuals who dissent from or fail to comply with the aforementioned ritualized behavior are seen as a health threat to society. Quote, At a psychological level of analysis, empirical evidence reveals that the subjective perception of infection risk causes individuals to be more conformist, to prefer conformity and obedience in others, to respond more negatively toward others who fail to conform, and to endorse more conservative socio-political attitudes. Simply put, where there is a high prevalence of infectious diseases, the resulting stress on human health is likely to result in the emergence of authoritarian forms of governance. The researchers note that this effect is consistent with previous research, which also found that pathogen prevalence was uniquely linked to conformist attitudes and personality traits. Examining the effects of malnutrition, warfare, and famine, they found, significantly, that only the threats of famine and pathogens correlate with authoritarian governance. Another study delves further into the psychology linking perceived threats with conformity. In Threats and Conformity Deconstructed, Perceived Threat of Infectious Disease and Its Implications for Conformist Attitudes and Behavior, Murray and Schaller found that the threat of disease may trigger conformist attitudes in the population at large. They discovered that when the threat of infectious disease was prominent, the population expressed greater liking for people with conformist traits and those who exhibited higher levels of behavioral conformity. End quote. Disturbingly, the study found that an individual's perception of vulnerability to infection does not necessarily need to be rooted in reality to produce a profound psychological effect. If individuals simply perceive that they are vulnerable to infection, they tend to prefer conformity and accept authoritarian measures, even if they are not actually under threat. Our experimental manipulation focused on perception, not reality, the researchers wrote. This does not guarantee that the threat of a viral pandemic will be used again, but it should help you to understand what we are working against. In whatever crisis is used next, our loved ones will be bombarded by 24-hour fear porn news cycles, like they were during COVID-1984, and we should expect their compassion to be weaponized just as much as their fear. We can take heart knowing that so many people around the world politely complied simply because they were being told that to do otherwise would result in dead grandparents. 
In the same vein, we should acknowledge that many of our fellow humans care so deeply about the beauty of this planet, the animals, and the world being left to the coming generations. Unfortunately, this compassion can and will be used against us to induce compliance in the name of fighting a pandemic, climate change, or some other emergency. This doesn't mean we should harden our hearts and forego empathy. Rather, we should make time for deeper self-awareness, getting to understand our own motivations, habits, and goals. I encourage you to check out my book, The Holistic Self-Assessment, for more on this process. If we each aim to strengthen our body, mind, and spirit, and take steps to break away from corrupt systems, we can prepare for the uncertain road ahead and ensure that we are the ones in control of our destiny. We can come from a place of strength, honoring our logical, objective thinking, as well as our intuition. From this place, we can better determine whether we are being manipulated once again and what steps we need to take to protect ourselves. Ultimately, our liberation from the technocratic state starts and ends in harnessing the power of both our hearts and our minds. Chapter 13 Agora 2030 and the Agorist Development Goals In the discussion on COVID-1984, I outlined how Ida Alkin, a gender contributor with the World Economic Forum, wrote an essay in 2016 describing potential outcomes for the year 2030 and beyond. What I didn't mention is that in one section of this essay, Alkin, again imagining herself writing from the future, expresses her sadness about how certain people were left behind as digital biotechnology advanced. She laments the people, quote, who do not live in our city, those we lost on the way, end quote, referring to the people who opted out of the smart cities and social credit scores to exit and build self-supplying communities. What Ms. Alkin fails to account for is the millions of people already choosing to exit the cities to build lives outside the digital dystopia planned for 2030. Even those who cannot or will not leave their cities are beginning to question what their future holds if they remain in tightly controlled metroplexes. While most readers of a book like this will not support the vision put forth by the WEF, the UN, and their cartels, we cannot deny that these institutions are working night and day with immense propaganda budgets to achieve their 2030 agenda. They are working with hundreds of multinational corporations and nearly every major world government and are spending trillions of dollars to manifest their great reset. Thus, it is of utmost importance that the people place a high value on understanding what exactly we envision our 2030 will look like. If we reject the new normal of the Great Reset, we must understand what exactly we are seeking to create. Will it be, you will own nothing and be happy? Or perhaps it could be, you will be thriving and be fulfilled? The answer completely depends on every single one of us. Future generations are depending on us to build an alternative to the technocratic vision. With that in mind, I'd like to take a moment to encourage every reader to actively visualize what an Agora 2030, or Liberation 2030, might look like. Spend a few moments in quiet reflection or meditation contemplating what you would like to see in your personal world. 
Below, I will elaborate on what is needed to extrapolate our individual visions for a better world into a plan that can be voluntarily adopted by businesses and individuals. Here is one alternative vision of 2030. This is my simple attempt at outlining what 2030 could be like. I work every day to help others see the importance of envisioning such a future. Maybe your vision is slightly different. Whatever it is, write it down, see it in your mind, and do what you can to bring it to reality. Let's reject Agenda 2030 and the Great Reset. Let's build the People's Reset. Welcome to 2030. I own land, live among like-minded people, and life has never been better. Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my home. I own a couple of acres in an intentional community just outside a major city. I live in an earthship with my family and our pets. Together, we live amongst dozens of other families and individuals who decided to get out of the concrete jungle and head for greener pastures. Every family owns their own land and home. The founders of our community bought the land and began recruiting members in the late 2010s as the surveillance grids became more obvious. Our community has built our own homes, roads, a network of trails, and a community center, where we host educational workshops to teach other communities how to become independent from the grid. Speaking of the grid, some of our neighbors have been experimenting with free energy devices, while others are focused on solar, hydroelectric, and wind power. We are determined to be energy independent, especially after some governments began disconnecting the unvaccinated from the electric grid in 2026. Once food prices and inflation began to rise in 2022, we realized we needed to cut our dependence on the grocery stores. Most of the corporate stores require a digital ID to enter anyways, and most of our community members have opted out of that system. So now, all of our homes are nestled within food forests, producing fruits from around the world. The hundreds of trees we have planted in the last few years shield our homes from the elements and allow for privacy. As you walk down the pathways, you can also see many permaculture gardens producing veggies and herbs for cooking and medicine. Free-range children are running in every direction, laughing and playing in the sun. The best part of our lives now is that we are not alone. In fact, we are one of thousands of communities that form an international network outside of the big cities and the control grid. Our community is surrounded by several other like-minded communities, each with their own governance models, traditions, and norms. We often trade goods and services with our neighbors. On our land, we grow the most delicious organic avocados and bananas. We fetch good barter with our neighbors for plantains and medical tinctures. Some communities have begun establishing long-distance trade networks. Thankfully, in the late 2010s, a handful of forward-thinking individuals began establishing local cells and circles, helping people network and find the community they were looking for. These groups laid the foundation for a people's reset, which saw millions of people disobeying medical mandates and exiting from the grid. Those cells eventually morphed into intentional communities and eco-villages, united by respect for self-ownership and bodily autonomy. Together, they form a decentralized network of networks, which gives the people an option outside of the smart cities. 
I've even heard rumors that some of these communities help people escaping from the cities. Sometimes I think about the people we left behind, those who became so consumed with the benefits and conveniences of technology that they couldn't see the dangers, the people who were propagandized to hate their neighbor if they belonged to a different political party. Even worse, the people who knew what was coming but failed to act. They live different kinds of lives inside the city. They are only allowed to go outside their apartments when the climate warning system is listed as green and when the Gates World Health Foundation says the pandemic threat level is below a 70. No one is allowed to drive a vehicle anymore or own land. You can't rent an appliance without showing a digital ID card or scanning your retinas. Actually, no one is even allowed in the city without being sanitized, scanned, tagged, and assigned a social credit rating, which determines your class and access to public services. We know there are labor camps and quarantine camps, but they are hard to find because the ruling Democratic-Republican alliance moves the prisoners often. We pray every day for our brothers and sisters in the city, and we work toward a day when all people are free to join us in creating the lives of their dreams. Thank you for indulging my imagination. This may seem silly or even pointless to some, but I have seen the benefits of consciously visualizing what you want in the future and taking concrete steps to bring it to reality. This is exactly what we need at this moment. However, we have only discussed the idea of individuals dreaming up their Agora 2030. What steps would be necessary as a society to build a world based on individual liberty, mutual aid, voluntary association, and self-ownership? The UN Sustainable Development Goals The 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development was adopted by all UN member states in 2015. Agenda 2030 is claimed to be a, quote, shared blueprint for peace and prosperity for people on the planet now and into the future, end quote. As noted earlier, it is comprised of 17 sustainable development goals which are described as a method for ending poverty and other deprivations, with strategies that, quote, improve health and education, reduce inequality, and spur economic growth, all while tackling climate change and working to preserve our oceans and forests, end quote. The beginning of the SDGs can be traced back to the June 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where more than 178 countries adopted Agenda 21, an all-encompassing plan to, quote, build a global partnership for sustainable development to improve human lives and protect the environment, end quote. Agenda 21 would eventually evolve into Agenda 2030. Again, it's important to recognize that organizations like the United Nations and World Economic Forum write papers and found programs which pay lip service to sustainability, improving health and education, protecting the environment, etc. But these buzzwords mask the true agenda of the predator class. Unfortunately, they manipulate the masses with forked tongues, so we often find that well-meaning activists get sucked into the think tank-slash-non-governmental organization-slash-non-profit industrial complex, where support of the UN and WEF are treated as a given. These activists hear green terminology being used and are deceived into supporting the emergence of the technocratic state. 
For example, take a look at the 17 UN SDGs, and you will see there is quite a bit any reasonable person could agree with. However, the heart of the matter is whether or not these goals are achieved with the consent of the people in a voluntary fashion. If the goals are accomplished as the result of an international, decades-long propaganda campaign, then we cannot honestly say it reflects the true will of the people, especially when the people only hear about the alleged benefits of the UN SDGs and not the reality that they will require the removal of privacy, property rights, and individual and national sovereignty. The United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals Goal 1. End poverty in all its forms everywhere. Goal 2. End hunger. Achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Goal 3. Ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. Goal 4. Ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. Goal 5. Achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. Goal 6. Ensure availability and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Goal 7. Ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Goal 8. Promote sustained, inclusive, and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment, and decent work for all. Goal 9. Build resilient infrastructure. Promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization and foster innovation. Goal 10. Reduce inequality within and among countries. Goal 11. Make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. Goal 12. Ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Goal 13. Take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. Goal 14. Conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. Goal 15. Protect, restore, and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably manage forests, combat desertification, halt and reverse land degradation, and halt biodiversity loss. Goal 16. Promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all, and build effective, accountable, and inclusive institutions at all levels. Goal 17. Strengthen the means of implementation and revitalize the global partnership for sustainable development. The verbs used in the SDGs include end, ensure, promote, reduce, protect, strengthen, and conserve. If each individual voluntarily chose to adopt these goals, it might lead to a better world. However, we know that the goals are being socially engineered into existence and will come in the form of another totalitarian despot, or cabal of despots, running a centrally planned government that gives itself the authority to make decisions for the masses. I don't pretend to speak for the world, but without a doubt it is true that the waking masses of the world need direction and purpose. I propose that the best parts of the UN SDGs be stripped from the top-down authoritarian template employed by the UN and WEF. I also propose 
that a set of agorist development goals be outlined and adhered to on a voluntary basis by individuals, businesses, and civil society organizations that align with the ADG's goals and philosophy. These ADGs could also be known as the Autonomous Development Goals for a potentially broader appeal outside of our niche movement. The point is to propose a set of living goals which can be updated and adapted with the times. Anyone who believes that the ADGs represent our best path forward to maintain liberty, privacy, and bodily autonomy could sign on or adopt them as their own. The goals would also aim to be truly inclusive of voices that are already completely ignored by the United Nations and World Economic Forum, including indigenous communities, working-class people from all political backgrounds, and the youth. This could eventually lead to a public gathering of brilliant minds from around the world who want to contribute to the ADGs. As with the SDGs, those involved could set target dates for ensuring progress is made in support of the ADGs. For too long, the UN has pretended to represent the diversity of our world while continuing to uphold colonizing structures that have wreaked havoc on the planet for generations. With a looming technocratic state of digital biosurveillance, it has never been more appropriate for the people to recognize the values they hold dear and set their own specific goals for the coming decade and beyond. This is my first attempt to outline the ADGs. I look forward to modifying and adapting them as other parties show interest. The Agorist slash Autonomous Development Goals Before outlining the goals, it should be noted that they are born out of the recognition of certain principles. First and foremost, in alignment with the universal principle of self-ownership, we recognize that all human beings have bodily autonomy and that they alone make decisions regarding their health, diet, relationships, and actions. Accordingly, all human beings have the right to practice or access health care in whatever form they choose, so long as they are not violating the bodily autonomy of another person. Additionally, every human being has a right to privacy. Specifically, individuals deserve the right to communicate with others with the expectation that their words and thoughts will not be monitored, cataloged, studied, or used without their express consent. All human beings have the right to educate themselves and their children in the manner they please. There should be no corporate or state restriction on homeschooling, unschooling, etc. Every human being has a right to grow his or her own food. Each individual has the right to participate in local organic food systems, free of pesticides, hormones, GMOs, 3D-printed and synthetic food products, etc. In furtherance of these principles, I propose the following ADGs. Goal 1. Promote access to non-state-funded forms of education that emphasize voluntarism, self-ownership, mutual aid, critical thinking, creativity, and self-directed learning. Goal 2. Foster the creation of a network of homeschooling co-ops, unschooling pods, world schooling advocates, and forest school proponents whose services can be easily accessed by parents in need. Goal 3. Create localized and decentralized food systems through community gardens and food forests, and connecting communities with local food producers. 
This can be accomplished by making knowledge of permaculture and indigenous food systems more readily available to the masses. Goal 4. Create pesticide and GMO-free zones, where communities can practice agriculture without fear of contamination from genetically engineered technology and toxins. Goal 5. Promote digital privacy education and encryption tools. Encourage and support access to these tools. Goal 6. Defund the corporations, banks, philanthropic foundations, and governments, which are the true causes of the destruction of the planet, its people, wildlife, and ecosystems. This could be achieved through mass boycott and divestment campaigns coordinated by grassroots organizations around the world. Goal 7. Support and promote the use of alternative, digital, and paper currencies. The heart of our current predicament is economic enslavement in a system based on debt and the forced use of state-backed fiat money. Thus, every person should have access to the currency of his or her choice. Goal 8. Protect the right of all people to access land. Protect the right to harvest rainwater, solar energy, and other resources that allow individuals to become self-sustaining. Goal 9. Promote a new standard of optimal human health by fostering dialogue about practices and modalities that have been maligned or made illegal by governments. Encourage an honest debate on the benefits of a range of diets and lifestyles while respecting individual choices. Goal 10. Build human settlements that foster empowerment, community, resiliency, and innovation. Create communities free of exposure to harmful environmental toxins, including, but not limited to, electromagnetic frequency radiation, GMOs, aerosols, pesticides, nanotechnology, etc. The above goals represent the first spark in what I hope will become a roaring inferno of effort to envision and manifest a parallel world to the one being sold to us by the predator class. If enough courageous souls take the time to develop these seeds into strong roots, we may yet have an opportunity to turn the tide of technocratic tyranny, which has most recently shown itself in the form of COVID-1984. I will once again remind the reader that whenever you happen to stumble upon these words, you are still the most valuable defense against the technocrats and their vision of a transhuman dystopia. Your very existence as a living, breathing human being is a defiant act in the face of their technocratic state. Keep breathing. Keep fighting. Take these ideas, make them your own, and remind the world what humanity is capable of.